0: This week on Punch Mountain, we've said it before and we'll say it again. If you throw an office party on Christmas Eve, you get what you deserve. Shoot the glass because we're watching Die Hard. Punch Mountain starts now.
1: Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, no, 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 no. But by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm joined as always by a man who's
0: partial to Roy Rogers' chicken, Mr. David Hara. David, is that true? Well, Mac, I think you're talking about Kenny Rogers' roasters as opposed to Roy Rogers' hamburgers. But either way, I like it all, man. The Roy Rogers by my
1: house in Burke, Virginia, had fried chicken, and I'll take this argument to the grave, David.
0: Actually, now that you mention it, didn't Roy Rogers have it all? I feel like I the one time I was in Washington D.C. for my eighth grade field trip, I feel like I had roast beef there, which I enjoyed. Maybe Roy
1: Rogers got bought by Hardee's, and so then the Roy Mm -hmm. Rogers became a Hardee's, and now there's this weird. Do Hardy's still exist, or did they finally be like, fine, Carl's Jr., have your way with us?
0: Hardee's has the East Coast, mostly the Northeast, and then uh, Carl's Jr. has everything else. A long time ago, Tom Sharpling was talking on The Best Show about how there should be a version of Risk based on fast food franchises. And I've wanted that every day since then. I think that is such a <laughs> neat idea. I mean, <laughs> something's fucked up with me that I also was like, ooh. Can't you just write the names on the pieces? Like, I don't know.
1: <laughs> you know, it was the future that was, you know, predicted to us by uh, Demolition Man as as Taco Bell, the sole survivor of the fast food wars, or mm-hmm. the winner of the fast food wars. Right. But enough about fighting. Let's talk about shooting. Whoa, whoa what a great transition. David, congratulations. Uh, happy anniversary. This is our 50th. Episode, not counting our inventory episodes, which would make this episode 54?
0: Yes, we're coming up on a year of episodes, even though we've already done well over a year of episodes. But uh, (laughs) yes, this is... Episode 50, let's go out with a bang, even though we're not going anywhere, but let's do Die Hard. Mac, let's talk about Die Hard tonight. What are your initial thoughts about Magnum Opus from John McTiernan and Die
1: I was avoiding this movie. I was not necessarily gunning for this to be part of the podcast, just because I feel like Die Hard's been talked to death. It's one of those movies that I, like, everyone knows about. You know, I just was like, do we really need, you know, more people to talk about this? Especially now that there's like the running joke about it being a Christmas movie. However, David, something about this podcast that we've experienced in the past is there's movies that we've watched so much that you kind of taken for granted, like Speed. And actually sitting down to watch them for this podcast and trying to, you know, look at them through fresh eyes has been really rewarding. And I'll say that watching Die Hard this time, it, it was a little slow for me to get into it. But those moments that, you know, make it worth it, I, I enjoyed it. And, and by moments, Die Hard for me is an all-time great stop-and-watch movie. Like when I was flipping around uh, TVs, before the Netflix age children, uh, you know, be flipping around cable TV and you come across Die Hard playing on whatever, right? Lifetime, TNT, doesn't matter. I'd have to stop and watch at least like 30 minutes of it. And because of that, I feel like I've only seen Die Hard, like the actual, like, you know, theatrical version three times maybe. I remember the first time I saw the beginning, I was like, what is this movie? I'm not, I'm used to starting about 15
0: minutes in when...
1: Uh, with a lot of commercial breaks.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I I've seen this movie considerably more. This was one of those VHSs that I wore out. Like I got it mm. when I was 9 years old, you know, a child watching R-rated movies, what is more American. But I watched the heck out of it. Same thing as you. When it became a cable TV staple, whether it was TBS, TNT, USA, whatever, if it was on, I was watching at least a little bit of it. But then the Die Hard as a Christmas movie crowd started to become more popular. That sort of stole my enthusiasm a little bit. And I was just, I put Die Hard on ice for a while because I let the chuds have it for a little bit. But like you said, the magic of the mountain is that we get to sort of bring these movies back to life in our eyes. And I have to tell you, this is still one of the all-time great entertainments. Like this is one of the most satisfying movies you will ever see in your life. Watching it for the mountain only reinvigorated that love for it in my eyes. And I'm saying all this now because from an action standpoint, I don't know if I'm going to be kind to this movie. So I just want to get it out of the way now. I want to say I love this movie, but uh, this is the definitive ranking of action movies, Mac.
1: Yeah, just because people feel like something's supposed to be at the top of the mountain don't mean it is. But we will talk about that in length. But David, let me ask you this. How did you watch the movie this time around?
0: I watched it through a streaming site, uh, not a branded one. I just decided not to pay $4 for it.
1: I had to sign up for like an AMC Plus free trial, and because of that, there'd be times in the movie where it would fade to black as if it was going to go to a commercial break, but then immediately come right back in. So it felt <laughs> weird. As far as I could tell, nothing was cut out. You know, it still had all the swear words, that one uh, nudity shot, Alice doing cocaine, but mm-hmm. uh, be- but because to me this is such like a cable TV staple, as you mentioned, it felt appropriate. Even if uh, occasionally the movie stops, so we can get an ad for, um, oh, I don't know, Discovery of Witches or whatever AMC show, uh, the, you know, Daryl Dixon's uh, Walking Dead World or whatever that's been off us called. Who cares? But David, something about this movie that still shines for me is its supporting characters. Does any movie do it better than Die Hard?
0: No other movie does. This is the gold standard for just forgetting the Rolodex and filling every position you can with as many good names. I mean... You've got Paul Gleason, you've got William Atherton, you've got Reginald Bell Johnson. There's so many up and down this list. I could do an entire diehard mountain of supporting characters and just rank them and have a good old time for an hour, but you're absolutely right. The movie is the sum of its parts and one of the strongest parts is the supporting cast.
1: Yeah, it's just like a masterclass on creating you know these very memorable supporting characters or at least ones you could like tell apart.
0: Yeah, one of the things that you can tell about How beloved this movie is, is you could very easily do a Die Hard themed party where everyone comes as their favorite character and there's not going to be a lot of double ups. Like you could go pretty deep on that roster and still have a pretty entertaining costume party.
1: I mean, I'm probably wrong about this, but I'm going to say supporting characters. Number one, Star Wars. (laughs) Number two, Die Hard. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i don't know it's
1: nice noodles is that from the first star wars
0: movie that's from the third walrus man <laughs> oh walrus man's from the first oh well there you go <laughs>
1: but you mentioned it david this thing is directed by john mctiernan a veteran action movie director and i was looking at his imdb for some reason i assumed the diehard came out before predator but not the case so he mctiernan did predator with arnold schwarzenegger you know a big successful movie with a big action hero and then he's after that, he's like, I'm going to roll the dice on this dude from Moonlighting.
0: Sean McTiernan is on a nice little roll because this is 87's Predator, 88 is Die Hard, 90 is going to be The Hunt for Red October, which is another make Alec Baldwin an action star. OK, yeah, this is him saying I am a phenomenal action director. I don't particularly care for Predator one way or the other, but you can't deny that the one two punch of Predator and Die Hard is a very strong one two punch.
1: Yeah, I mean, watching this movie and, like, the cinematography and the way that he, there's, like, some sort of a, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to use this word right. There's some verisimilitude to the action. Like, everything seems, like, grounded and weighted in the real world. Like, just, I don't know. There's a lot of things. This, This movie looks good. That's what I'm trying to say. It looks fucking good. And watching this movie, I can see a little bit of, you know, maybe some things that James Cameron, like, borrowed. Or maybe not borrowed, But maybe they just were on that same kind of, you know, 80s wavelength. Maybe they were just both crushing it. Why is is it going to be a borrowing situation?
0: But it definitely did lay the groundwork for an entire generation of movies. And you can't help but see, you know, when you see lens flares on a J.J. Abrams movie, you think, oh, I remember seeing lens flares in Die Hard. And I like those very much. Like, there's just so many little things that carried over throughout the years in other action movies that all started with Die Hard.
1: My God, this dude loves lens flares. There's no getting around it. Drink every time you see one and you'd be dead. Now, the other thing about Bruce Willis, David, is in my mind, when, you know, there's Die Hard and there's like a whole bunch of action movies and like, you know, he's very quickly established as this action hero. When I looked up his IMDb, I mean, Die Hard was Bruce Willis's like breakout action movie role. I mean, before that, you know, he was, uh, he was in the movie Blind Date. You know, he was obviously, you know, in Moonlighting. He was trying to get a musical career going for himself. But if you look at it, like there's Die Hard in in 1988. And then after that, yeah, he's an action hero, but his action hero career gets like very slow rolled. Mm -hmm. Because then Die Hard 2 is his next one in 1990. And then I would call Hudson Hawk a comedy. And then the last Boy Scout is in 91. And then his arguably his fourth action movie, Striking Dist. I mean, by the time he makes Pulp Fiction, you know, you think of Bruce Willis as like this, you know, action hero, but he's made maybe. Let me see here. One, Die Hard, two, three, four action movies at that point.
0: Here's the thing about Bruce Willis, though. I feel like his career relies on a little bit of luck. Because if you look at the at the roles he picks, you know, Hudson Hawk being a very good example where he's riding the wave of Die Hard popularity. Hey, man, what do you want to do next? Oh, well, let's, you know, let's flip the genre on its head and do an action comedy. Or, you know, let's toll on the, on the Look Who's Talking series. For a little while. Let's do Bonfire of the Vanities now that I'm looking at his IMDb. Like, you know, not the best decisions in the world, but every now and then he'll have a Pulp Fiction or he'll have a 12 Monkeys and just, you know, hit a fucking bullseye where he can coast for another few years. But, you know, it's just it's all momentum with Bruce Willis. And this was the start of of what we could see Bruce Willis do. He was. Smarmy in a charming way. He was charming in a smarmy way. I'm not sure, but he was the perfect action every man.
1: Yeah. I mean, in his query constantly mixed it up. The fact that he even did Pulp Fiction is something that he definitely did not have to do when that movie came out. But, David, something else about this movie I wanted to mention. This movie is based on a novel. Yes. Called, I think, Nothing Lasts Forever. Is that right?
0: Yes. It's called Nothing Lasts Forever. That's right. By Roderick Thorpe.
1: Yeah. And something that I think we both discovered during the, you know, our, our research into this movie is that the book that became Die Hard was not the first book in that series.
0: That's right. So Roderick Thorpe, this was actually the second in a series of the adventures of a detective named Joe Leland. Uh, The first book was called The Detective, which was later made into a movie. Mac, do you happen to know who played the detective?
1: I sure do, David. It was Mr. Frank Sinatra.
0: That is right. Once I discovered that, it unlocked a lot with regard to the John McClane character, or rather how Bruce Willis was playing it. Like I could see Frank Sinatra playing it this way, or I could see Bruce Willis trying to play Frank Sinatra doing this, if that makes sense.
1: Well, in the novel, like, the character Joe Leland, or the, you know, the John McClane character, was, like, a generation older. Like, instead Mm -hmm. of being a New York cop, he was a retired cop. Instead of it being his wife, it was his daughter who he was trying to rescue. But just the idea of, like, Frank Sinatra, even for a minute, getting excited about doing this role, I just, God, that, I love it so much. He gets a phone call, and he's like, they're making a movie out of nothing lasts forever. Time to uh, fill those Joe Leland shoes again. Bada bing, bada boom. You get in the index,
0: pal. I'm not getting in those index. Yeah, no bloody feet for me. What kind of broad does he screw? All right, we got to get uh, Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson together with uh, Frank Sinatra <laughs> one of these days.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll fix that in, in post so it, it's not uh, uh, terrible as it sounds. Hey, David, before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. Number one, should it be further or farther? Uh, Further,
0: unless unless we're climbing a literal distance. <laughs> I don't know. If
1: you search Die Hard on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions so we'll do some quickly provided answers. Mac, is Die Hard on Netflix or Prime? Well, David, because it's a Christmas music, its uh, rights are exclusively to the Hallmark Channel. David, why Die Hard is so popular? That's, okay, that's the question.
0: Die Hard's so popular because of its love of Twinkies. I would never know what the ingredients were if not for this movie. Mac, what is the most famous scene in Die Hard?
1: Well, David, after some quick research, it's easily the one where John McClane stops to look at a pornographic poster. David, why is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Because Holly's boss gets shot shot oh my goodness oh bosses you you're you're doing okay bosses <laughs> hey Dave before we dive in the story of a man trapped in a building on Christmas let's check in with two friends whose most harrowing Christmas is when they were trapped with their own fucking families David Hotta, I'm talking about us it's a friendship check-in uh David Hotta, how
0: are you I'm doing all right I just need to make some calls to my parents after this episode airs <laughs> but I'm I'm doing okay Mac you know I often struggle with, uh, with what to talk about on these friendship check-ins, I don't do much in my life. But Mac, I got NBA League Pass, so get ready for the next six months of telling you about halftime shows. I love it. <laughs> so I was watching, you know, so I'll just have NBA games on. Now I'm trying to get back into the NBA. I've been away since, gosh, Yao and T-Mac. It's been a good dozen years. So I got NBA League Pass. I have League Pass money. So I was watching uh, the Sacramento Kings playing, I forget who. And their halftime show was a gentleman named Kristen Sandu. And his act was taking those foam rollers that you use to, like, stretch out your back or whatever, just, like, those hard foam rollers, and balancing on them. He brought out four, ultimately. He started with two, and he balanced, like, one on top of the other, and then he stood on that on, like, a tray, and it was, oh, and then he gets the third one out. Oh, the fourth one. Here's the thing, though. One, it took so stinking long to set up that he, Mm -hmm. like... All of the enthusiasm evaporated from the stadium when he was like, oh, wasn't that impressive too? Now just give me a minute and a half. I'm just gonna do three. And like, he would have to set them up, balance them, that sort of thing. It was really embarrassing for Kristen Sandu, but then he gets to the fourth foam roller and then he balances on top of that. And like, I've been chiding him this whole time, but once he gets to four, I think, what if today's the day? What if today's the day that he falls and it's on television and he just dies in front of all these people? And I'm watching him balance on these four rollers, and I'm thinking, this is exactly what he wanted. He wanted me to think that he was in peril and to have my attention diverted to what he was doing. So you know what, Kristen Sandu? I'm saying it publicly. You win. You got me. So uh, everybody, go check out Kristen Sandu next time he's in town.
1: Yeah, you know he's hanging out at the uh, Sacramento Hilton bar later that night. And he's like, you know what? The secret is, is those, uh, those chumps out there. I call them chumps. They want to <laughs> watch me fall those assholes could choke on my foam rollers because I'm Kristen Sandu. Kristen motherfucking
0: Sandu. Right? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. Mac, how are you?
1: I am doing good, David. Look, I know what we all think. Uh, I'm some sort of Superman. No, David, I'm, I'm like, I'm flesh and blood, right? I'm prone to the same poor decisions and weaknesses of an average person like yourself. And so, <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I, I like a lot of dumb stuff, right? And, and I, I will buy my fair share of collectibles. You know, I uh-huh. own a hot toy, and if you know what that is, it is not uh, something you fuck. It is a uh, <laughs> it's
0: something that fucks you.
1: It, it it's expensive uh, action figure is what it is, a Spider Man. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And I'm I something I'm not interested in is the Transformers. Uh, I liked them when I was a kid, but you know, just whatever. I'm you know as an adult that does not appeal to me. However, David, you know, over Christmas break, I follow these like toy accounts, and one of them was like. Uh, oh, hey, uh, such and such is doing a a sale on Transformers. And I was looking at it, and I was like, oh, look, they're re-releasing a figure that I had as a kid and quickly broke. Yeah, that's worth five bucks for me. I'll get that. And then there was like a modern sort of Transformer. It's like a a studio series. It was a figure from the original animated movie that they are re-releasing. And and it it looked cool, because here's the thing when I was a kid, David, is I don't know if, did you ever play with Transformers? Oh, you bet I did. The manufacturer, I guess Hasbro, Mattel? Hasbro, right? Yeah. What they emphasized was the fact that these were working vehicles or whatever they were, and then they could transform into a robot. But the posability of the robot like, did not matter. Like this, The one that I repurchased was a hot rod from the Transformers oh, movie. okay. And once you transform into a car to a robot, the robot is just like a statue. Like its arms can kind of wiggle- its head does not turn, its legs do not move. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of playability there, which as a kid, I didn't give a shit. I just wanted to fight with robots and stuff that always bothered me. But anyway, this other figure was of uh, the lady Transformer from the movie. God, what is her fucking name? RC? Okay. I don't know. Hold on. My toxic trait of not looking it up, I got to give into it real quick (laughs) and actually look it up (laughs) as the first Transformer to to break the gender barrier. Uh, By the way, I like how Transformers were like, uh, let's have one that's a dinosaur. We'll have some that transform, and they can like turn into other robots. And then like five years later, somebody was like, what if one of them's a woman? <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> um, I guess. Are we going to have to pixelate anything? Okay. I guess not. Yes. RC was her name. The only way that I will uh, forgive Transformers for not having a female character is if in the mind of the creators, they were all sexless, uh, androgynous robots. They're like, they're, <laughs> it has no gender. It's a robot anyway, David, uh, I didn't know this about uh, modern day Transformers, but they are a fucking impossible. This oh, one on, really? the, on the box, and again, it only cost me like $5, but in the box, it advertised like 19 steps to transform. Getting this robot from robot to a fucking car was twice as difficult as putting together like, a, you know, an Ikea bookshelf. And the thing that I was left with is, is this enjoyable for anyone? Is that something that kids like?
0: I wonder if it's just busy work. I was thinking about this watching Lego Masters the other day, where, look, I love Lego Masters. It's a fantastic show. But a lot of people's enthusiasm for all things Lego is a bit much, because after a while, it just feels like busy work, where you're like, oh, I got Hogwarts. I'm going to be locked in my room for three weeks now. So like, I wonder if we've just hit an era of... All right, you, you won't be able to break this Transformer, but it will keep you busy for at least 45 minutes, and that's all I need to take a nap.
1: I mean, the fact that this robot is a toy from like an almost 40-year-old movie. I mean, are any actual kids playing with it, or is it all adult <laughs> collectors? But in my mind, if you're a kid playing with this, and you're like, oh, no, here come the Decepticons, is my kid voice. Uh, we got to Transform and Roll Out. Give me 30 minutes. You know, where I look at the instructions, fold this <laughs> in here, oh, it broke that and it did it did by the way the arm snapped off so easily wow i don't know if that's a poor toy or if that's just me like you know like a mongo what was the name of the strong guy from uh uh blazing saddles blazing saddles Mongo. Mongo, yes yeah yeah mongo there we go yeah just (laughs) there's two wolves inside of us david one of them is named mongo (laughs) but anyway uh transformers uh you're crazy good you know get out of here Okay, David, looking at my watch, it has now fallen off of Nakatomi Tower. Does that mean it's time to do this thing?
0: Max, stop making fists with your toes. We're going in.
1: Okay, David, in case someone has not seen Die Hard in a while, or for some reason they are not familiar with it, but they like action movies enough to listen to this podcast, it could happen. Just a level set. Could you give the back of the box description?
0: Of course I can. High above L.A., terrorists have seized a building, taken hostages, and declared war. But one man has managed to escape detection, an off-duty cop. He's alone, tired, and the only chance anyone has. Bruce Willis stars as New York City detective John McClane, newly arrived in Los Angeles to spend a quiet Christmas with his estranged wife, Bonnie Bedelia. But while waiting for her Christmas party to break up, terrorists seize control of the building. As hostages are rounded up, McClane slips away and, armed with only a service revolver, launches his own one-man war. 1988, 132 Minutes, directed by John McTiernan, rated R.
1: Oh man! Nineteen eighty standup comics must have had a field day with this movie. A New York cop goes to LA. Does he talk about the differences between the two? <laughs> the only thing here that I, you could have left off for sure is he's alone, tired, and the only chance anyone has. I mean, look, we're all tired. We're tired twenty four seven. The fact that John McClane's tired, I don't, just, just drink a drink a cappuccino, my man.
0: But part of what makes this movie work is the relatability, and I think this movie box is trying to send send that message by saying, "Hey." You've been sleepy peepee sometimes. Imagine having to fight off terrorists too. And you're like, oh, now I got to see this movie. If I could stay up.
1: Uh, Yeah. Well, in that case, it could have been like, he's alone, tired of his wife's constant nagging. (laughs) The only chance. (laughs) No. Yeah, it was a fine back of the box description. Yeah. David, let's do it. How's this movie start?
0: Mac, this movie starts in an airplane where New York cop John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, is flying to LA to see his family for Christmas. John gets picked up by the limo driver Argyle, played by Devereaux White and is taken to Nakatomi Plaza and the office Christmas party of his estranged wife, Holly, played by Bonnie Bedelia. While John and Holly figure out where John is going to sleep on this Christmas Eve, a couple of basketball fans enter the building and what? Shoot the security guards? Something ain't right at Nakatomi Tower. All right, Mac. So this movie starts in an airplane. It's not Die Hard 2 yet, it's Die Hard 1. But something I always noticed, and I think everybody notices how wide this movie is, did you know it was shot in 70 millimeter?
1: You know, that's so funny. I did not, but I, it's one of the things I, I definitely noticed. I was like, man, this movie's got some widescreen action to it. I didn't even stop to think that that was a possibility.
0: I don't know why that did not click to me until this until this recent viewing. In fact, I went and looked to see if it was released in 70. And it turns out it was released in 70 a week before its wide release in like 18 markets. Like 18 theaters around the country got a print. So you have to imagine 18 prints out there, plus they probably struck another two for the archives or whatever. So 20, 70 millimeter prints of Die Hard. Where are these prints now? Why are these not being shown at like museums? Maybe they are, they're just not on my radar, but that fascinates me.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if uh, any of those prints are still around.
0: I want one, give it to me now.
1: <laughs> so David, this movie opens up. We do not see John McClane. We first see our hero's knuckles. He's white duckling it. He's gripping the armrest of his uh you know, his his airplane seat very tightly, and his single-serving friend next to him goes, uh, "Yeah, you don't like flying, do you?" You know, Bruce Willis, Die Hard, and John McClane goes, "How well, can you tell?" And he does this classic Bruce Willis thing, which I don't know how to describe it. So the your upper lip to nose area, <laughs> my wife calls it the pico. Uh, somebody called the beak. I don't know what you call it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like he does this little like duck lip smile, sort of in a way where he's just like he kind of like puffs it out. And gives a little slight smile. It's like I don't know how to describe it. But it's classic Bruce Willis. You might one might call it as smarmy or smug, David.
0: It's it's definitely this smirk that I spent ages nine through twelve copying in nearly every photograph, and I hate every photograph I took between <laughs> ages nine and twelve because I thought I was so, I thought I was John McClane. I thought I was this this bad boy. Turns out I was just a real piece of shit.
1: Yeah, I mean, smirk is the perfect word for it. It, It's just, there's something where his face kind of alters or whatever. Because this guy's like, uh, hey, you should try, uh, you know, making um, fists with your toes. You know, basically just like crunching up your feet and letting it go. You know how, David, how you would do anything? Just like sort of squeeze something and then release, you know, just to relax the muscle. And John McLean's like, yeah, I'll fucking try. What's this yoga bullshit? I mean, he doesn't say that. The (laughs) vibe is there. And then they land, and he gets up from the seat, and he's got a teddy bear, I guess, you know, a gift for one of his kids. He's got more than one. And as he gets up out of the seat, uh, the stewardess sees him and gives him a total, like, just fuck me look. What, why? What are we supposed to get from this? Besides, of course, that, you know, John McLean right away, women want him, uh,
0: men want to be him. Here's the thing. My first answer, my gut reaction, I have no fucking idea. I have no idea. Why the stewardess was so about it about it with John McClain. But if I had to give you an answer, if I had to guess. So the thing about this movie that we're that we're already establishing a minute and a half in. So we've seen our hero. He's scared of flying. And so now he's he's taking a big giant teddy bear out of the overhead compartment and he's carrying it around. And that's what gets the the hey, you know, come hither, look from the from the flight attendant. This movie is trying to establish a different kind of action hero because we've seen Arnold, we've seen Sylvester. Sylvester. I've never called him anything without Stallone. But we've seen all these muscly action heroes who are too cool for everything and too macho for everything. But already we've got a vulnerable action hero. He's afraid of flying. He doesn't mind carrying the teddy bear. It's going to be a, a running theme throughout this movie where he is the everyman. He is vulnerable in ways that we've never seen an action hero. And I think this is one of those ways that the movie rewards him for being a, a sensitive guy. Like, Hey. You carry teddy bears, I'm going to fuck you rotten <laughs> once we get off this plane.
1: Yeah, he's the every man that every woman wants to smash, I guess. <laughs> the theory that I landed on is she was attracted to him and was just about to say, hey, you look like the guy from Moonlighting. But, uh, you know, <laughs> they, they, I guess they cut that part out. But David, in case you were wondering if this movie was set in the 1980s or not, uh, do not worry because uh, John McClane brings his service revolver on the airplane. People are smoking at the airport. It is the 1980s. And David, look, when we, the very first episode we did was The Rock, right? Mm. Right. When the movie's title card appears on screen, it's like cut out and then filling up the letters, you know, it's like negative space or whatever. And filling up the space where the letters uh, of the title are is like a wave of fire. And there might've been like some sound effect. You're like, oh, hell yeah, I'm so pumped for this movie. Uh, Die Hard begins with the tiniest little Die Hard logo slowly coming together in the middle. There's like a cool sound effect, like a gagong, but it's just, it's, why is it so fucking small?
0: And especially if you imagine seeing that in 70 millimeter where it just takes them like forever to get to the middle of the screen. Yeah. Clink. The die and the hard meat in the middle. It's, uh, it is underwhelming.
1: That's my first punch up. Let's go back and make this Die Hard logo bigger than fucking life. <laughs> I want like a THX, you know, uh beat drop with that thing. It's like, burr, just, I want to. Oh, then I'm going to smash my brain open. <laughs> but David, the reason why John McClain is in LA is to hang out with his family. His family, of course, uh, you know, his wife, Holly Gennaro, Holly McClain, she is at her job's Christmas party. And right away, David, they're holding his Christmas party on Christmas Eve, so fuck this company. Why would you do that? It's Christmas Eve. Don't make a mandatory gathering on gathering on Christmas Eve.
0: I, I have to imagine that's just For the movie. And I don't know if that even makes sense to say that out loud, but like, but I don't know if this movie would have had the same weight if it was just a random December 16th. Uh, Does that make sense? There's something weightier about it being Christmas Eve.
1: Yeah, I'm not not faulting the movie. You know, sometimes movies will be like, oh, well, uh," their decisions were to streamline the plot feel like a little cheap. It doesn't feel cheap here. You know, it just makes me hate this company, (laughs) I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Sure. But uh, I have to imagine also that. There's an office party on Christmas Eve because everyone's making so much bank that they are truly appreciative of this job, which raises the question, Mac. We go to Nakatomi. We see Holly Gennaro's office. We see this skyscraper that's being built for the company. They had a record year. She gets a watch here in a little bit. Mac, do you make more now at your job than Holly made in this movie? What do you mean? So pick a number in your head, how much you imagine Holly is making in a salary at this job. I want to say no, David. I mean, because even in 1980s dollars, like, you know,
1: this company, it is, uh, it looks like it's making bank and they're like 1980s Reaganauts. You know, you get the sense that they might be underpaying Holly because they're shitty. But uh, I'm going to say that she's, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say she's really just raking it in. Why? What's your vibe?
0: Oh, no way in hell. There's no way in hell I'm making anywhere near what she's making. And normally I have fun with that game because 40 years have passed uh, nearly from the time this movie was made to now. Uh, I was hoping I would gain some ground, but no, Holly is boat racing me. I'm never going to catch up to her.
1: But when we first see Holly, the camera's kind of following around Mr. Takagi as he addresses his Christmas party. And then we kind of get a slow zoom. Everyone is at the party. Someone's still working. Turns out it's, you know, Holly. And I got to say, this is that moment where I was like, John McTiernan, you're a pretty good director. There's something to Die Hard that's not just the fact that it's a Christmas movie and Bruce Willis. John McTiernan is kind of like the forgotten person when you talk about Die Hard a little bit. I feel like if you talk about it as a John McTiernan film, that's like the third, fourth way you would talk about it. You'd be like, oh, Bruce Willis, oh, Christmas movie, oh, Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. And they're like, oh, yeah, John McTiernan directed it. I know he got in some weird trouble with some blackmail. That's for you to look up,
0: listener. I don't remember what it was.
1: But yeah, movies is interesting.
0: No, you're absolutely right. This movie, this is a very kinetic movie. And, you know, I think that's why it lives on in our minds as perhaps more of an action movie than it, than it is, is because it just. It always feels like it's in motion. It always feels like whatever is happening, even if it is a conversation between Holly and Hans Gruber later or anything like that, it feels important. John McTiernan has a way of making these scenes feel important and and good for him.
1: But as Holly's walking through the office, she's approached by Harry Ellis, basically the prototype character for every person who's in Wolf of Wall Street. He's your awesome, like, uh, you know, slicked back hair, lives for New Year's Eve. Sloppy steaks every Saturday, <laughs> just like coked out 80s Reagan knot. And he comes up to her, Holly, and he's like, he's like, hey, what about dinner tonight? Which, by the way, just a total coquette move. It's Christmas Eve. All right. Hey. <laughs> They're at an office Christmas party.
0: Hey, you got any plans? What about after? It's Christmas Eve, Ellis. Yeah, he clearly is like, I'm horny. Want to fuck? and <laughs> Like, that's the best he could do. What, what about dinner tonight? First of all, let's put some respect on Hart Bachner's name. If we're going to accomplish anything with this episode, we need to give credit to the unsung heroes of this movie. Ellis is an all-timer as far as characters oh, go. So
1: good. So good.
0: I mean, up there with Bill Paxton in True Lies, just that smarmy, shitty, but charming. Uh, it, it's terrific. I, I I'm such a fan of this character.
1: Yeah, Ellis is great. However, the fact that he's like so openly hitting on Holly it did kind of uh, bum me out a little bit because you know that Holly's got to put up with this kind of sexual harassment bullshit like all the time. Like, it just feeling that vibe, I got depressed a little bit uh, for Holly. I mean, the fact that Ellis is making, being so bold about it now, you, you uh, hopefully it's just because he's coked out of his mind. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not an everyday thing for him.
0: Yeah, hopefully he just wants a Christmas toss. But then again, he'll probably be carrying around the mistletoe through March.
1: Yeah, this guy sucks, which uh, the fact that he sucks is such a unique way does make him, of course, a standout character. But uh, Holly calls her uh, maid, her, you know, nanny, I guess, who lives in her house. But she calls and she's like, oh, did um did my husband, Mr. McClain, call? And the nanny's like, no, no telephono." Holly like, is like, oh, okay. And then she has the picture next to her desk of her family, including John. And she, like, turns it over and sort of, like, disgust. But when John arrives in uh, the L.A. airport, Picking him up is his limo driver that the, I guess the Nakatomi Corporation provided for him. And the limo driver is uh, Argyle, which I know is Aristotle from Head of the Class. David, how do you feel about Argyle?
0: I love Argyle too. Argyle is going to be played by Devereux White. So here's, the, here's my journey with Argyle, because since we are watching this movie for the mountain, I, I decided once and for all, I'm going to figure out what his name is, because I had always assumed It was Argyle because I had never heard of anybody named Argyle before, but it certainly could have been Argyle and I just misheard it or it could have been something else and I just misheard it. So I look up on IMDb, see it's Argyle, see Devereaux White and his name and his credits or whatever. I open that up. He's also in the Blues Brothers. He's the kid who's reaching for the guitar in Ray's music shop and uh, Ray Charles shoots at him with a gun. That's amazing. Argyle, Deborah White, congratulations.
1: That that is amazing. It's like Michael B. Jordan being in The Fucking Wire. It's like, you know, you shouldn't have uh, that long (laughs) a career, you know, being in um, in, in such awesome stuff. But yeah, Argyle rules. The fact his name is Argyle and he's just like, you know, he's pretty easygoing and he gives Bruce Willis, uh, John McClane, someone to play off of. Like when they're in the limo, you know. Because John McLean, he's an everyman. So does he sit in the back like he's some kind of hoity-toity fancy guy? No, he's sitting up front uh, in in the limo, which, you know, if I'm Argyle, like, David, I used to drive, like, Uber and Lyft and stuff. And if someone sat up front with me, I would not think that they were uh, everyman. I would think they'd need to get in the fucking back seat. You know what I mean? I don't want to talk to you.
0: Yeah, if you're going to sit in the front seat, you might as well drive, and I'll get in the back seat. This is not (laughs) the transaction we're here for.
1: But in the front seat, talking to Argyle, this is the Bruce Willis, like, Approach on full display here, which is that Bruce Willis somehow is like he's an everyman, right? He's like, yeah, limos. Uh, I don't really, you know, I don't. This is my first time in one. He's the everyman, but he's also somehow like too cool for school. Like if somebody was like, hey, do you want to go get a filet mignon with me? And somebody was like, uh, no, man, uh, McDonald's. I'm good enough with Applebee's steak. You know what I mean? But to take that approach of like, you know, I'm I'm an Applebee's Burger King guy. And somehow make it seem like you're a fucking idiot for asking. How, that's Does this make, is this is tracking at all? He manages to be blue collar and also too cool.
0: Pulling it off is is the key word there, you know, or is the key phrase. Because that's part of who the character is. He is someone who, by all outward appearances, is too cool for school. He's too cool for the room. He's looking around at California and just sneering at it. But he also realizes he's a total fucking lunkhead about a lot of things. And maybe he shouldn't be putting on these cool airs if he's just this vulnerable guy. Again, going back to the thesis statement of this movie, being that it—you know it's not your daddy's action hero. He is a guy who's trying to save his marriage as opposed to just, ah, I got the wife at home and she wants me to quit being a cop, but whatever. I'm just gonna keep being a cop. No, this is Bruce Willis, John McClane, being a vulnerable action hero. And I think only Bruce Willis could pull this off. Yeah,
1: and the fact that it's set in L.A., Amidst uh, a backdrop of, you know, what we could tell was like, you know, uh, uh, high flying corporations, especially since it was the 1980s when the rise of Japan's like technological superiority was definitely viewed with like a healthy dose of like racism. I guess the fact that like it's a Japanese corporation which changed from the book. The original novel was, I think, it was like an oil company. You know, that I don't. That was not you know by accident. But speaking of. of Uh, the Japanese corporation, the head of this office is a Mr. Takagi. And John McClane walks in and Takagi like greets him. And he's like, tell you, well, let's go try and find your wife. They go to Holly's office. Who's in Holly's office? It's not Holly, David. It's Ellis. And what is he doing?
0: Ellis is doing lines of coke. It's Christmas Eve. Why not have a snowball fight? So, you know, he's doing some lines. Here comes Takagi. Here comes John McClane. And Takagi says, oh, Ellis, meet John McClane, Holly's husband, the police officer. Great wing work by Mister Takagi. He absolutely <laughs> did not need to do that, but he did that. That's a fucking bro right there.
1: Yeah, and I think in the movie he says something like, um, "Ellis is in charge of uh, you know, international developments." John McClane's like he missed a spot just talking about his like coke mustache. Mm-hmm. But in the script, he's like, <laughs> the John McClane character goes, um, "Oh, you must have closed that Bolivia deal." <laughs> I was Bolivia famous for cocaine? I guess.
0: Oh, the Bolivian marching powder made famous by uh, Bright Lights Big City.
1: Oh, that's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't know that second part. I just do the, the first little uh, probably problematic <laughs> phrase. <laughs> but here the movie decides to crank the awkwardness up just to fucking 11. And let's hear the audio from it. And this is, of course, uh, how do you greet your wife's Japanese boss by saying this? You throw quite a party. I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan. (laughs) We're flexible. Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so we got you with tape decks. Uh, yikes, and then here comes Holly, and this interaction happens.
0: Show them the watch. Later. Well, go on, show them. What are you, embarrassed? It's just a small token of appreciation for all
1: our hard work. It's a Rolex. I'm sure I'll see you later. Ooh, first of all, that, that joke there about Pearl Harbor. Ugh goddamn yikes that is rough
0: if i'm john mcclain i'm sitting there wondering how did i set you up for that like i did not lead you anywhere near a pearl harbor joke why would you do that to me
1: the fact that they felt that like mr takagi who is in charge of so much fucking shit has to like have this joke on deck it's like yeah, show a little respect for this person who's made a lot of his life. He knows two languages. Okay. Probably more.
0: But if, if the Japanese have a sense of humor about anything, it's world war two. So of course he's (laughs) going to have that cocktail loaded.
1: And and here we get, uh, Ellis makes a big deal out of this watch. And look, this watch is a Rolex, right? It's an expensive watch. Holly probably just wants it to be like a nice present that she can enjoy. And occasionally when when she needs to know the time, you know, rotate her wrist slightly, but because of the way that Ellis says, like, Show him the watch. Show him the watch. Don't be embarrassed. This watch now becomes a symbol of, like, the fact that, you know, Holly is now theirs, right? Like, we gave her this watch. We put this watch on her. You couldn't afford this, John McClain. I wonder if this watch will be symbolic later. Maybe.
0: So because of that, because of the things later, and just because of the way it's presented right now, I have spent this entire time from the first time I ever watched this when I was a kid thinking that Ellis had bought her the watch and that they were dating. That has just been in my head, like, that I did not bother to correct that, you know, Ellis and Holly were keeping it casual, but uh, no, that was an office gift. That was a work present, David.
1: Yeah, but what it tells me, the fact that Ellis can buy her a gift, well, I don't know if that's the thing. Did Ellis buy her the gift or did the Nakatomi Corporation buy her the gift and he's just like taking credit, like, you know, trying to be like a, a big man or trying to show off in front of John the fact that he's like, yeah, look what I can give her and you can't cop.
0: Yeah, he's he's definitely alpha-dogging by taking credit for it because he's showing John, look what we can do for her that you can't. But perfect Ellis just sliding in and taking credit for this thing and planting this seed in my head for years and years, that's a good character, Mac.
1: And so Holly and John go to retreat in a washroom, which for the longest time I thought was like, oh, I guess they have a hotel there that John's going to stay at? Because this washroom is a uh, fucking nice. Just a just a nice chill vibe in there.
0: Yeah. I thought it was Alice's washroom because she makes a joke about wanting Alice's washroom. I thought they were dating Mac.
1: Fair enough. I mean, uh, I only do Coke at the bathrooms of, of my my significant others, David. I would not dare to excuse me, when I say bathroom, I mean office. I would not dare uh. do coke in the office of somebody I'm not romantically entangled with. But in the in the washroom, Holly and John are kinda having a moment and she's like, you know, where are you staying? It's like, uh, I know things are awkward, but you got two kids together. They're, these kids are a real afterthought in the Holly-John uh, dynamic.
0: Yeah, and they're, by all accounts, just separated. So even if you're just staying together for the kids, this should have been assumed. You can't go home if you're Holly and tell your kids, oh, I saw your father today. Oh, is he coming? No, no, he's, he's at his uh, friend's house. He's, you'll never see him. Like, that's so, so shitty, Holly.
1: Yeah. If I'm uh, coming to town to see my kids and my wife, I'm seeing both. Uh, I'm not going to see the kids tomorrow. But she goes, the kids really missed you. I missed you. And right there is a big fucking, that ball is right coming right down the middle. All you got to do is say, I missed you too, John. That thing's going out of the park. But instead, John decides to be a shithead. And he's like, oh, I guess you didn't miss my last name unless you're, signing some checks what the f- just god he's like a this guy sucks
0: he does suck and i had never noticed how much the lead character of diehard sucked until this viewing but he's really digging himself a hole in terms of wanting to root for him it's going to take some sort of diehardian effort for me to get back on his side but he does know he screws up there because when
1: holly gets called away john McLean looks in the mirror and he talks himself and he's like what are you doing real mature john like, the fact that he completely, like, you know, I don't know what you call it, babied out on her, shitty dude out on her. Uh, at least mm-hmm. he's aware of it. Oh, I, I skipped something now. So, one of the things that John McLean, at least in this scene, is taking, uh, you know, umbrage to is the fact that Holly McLean is now going by Holly Gennaro, which you may have heard mm-hmm. us mention a couple times. And she's like, John, we fucking talked about this already. But the th- reason why it gets to him is because when he first shows up at Nakatomi Plaza, he's got to, like, sign in on the touchscreen TV. Whoa, the future. And he tries to find um, Holly McLean, and he cannot, but he does find Holly Gennaro. He's like, come on, or whatever. But as he's using his touchscreen, at the desk, there's this, you know, front desk security guy. And, you know, of course, we just talked about it. Uh, John McClane's too cool for school. He's a like, cool, cool toy. And the security guy goes, yeah, and if you have to take a leak, it'll even help you find your zipper. This is that guy's go-to joke? Like, it has to be, right? Like, it's not the first time he's like, oh, you're commenting on this thing that no one's ever commented on before. No, this is this guy's set joke. Uh, It's bad.
0: Yes, because what is he doing there otherwise? This kiosk has taken his job. He really has no reason to be there other than to deliver quips about the thing that took his job. And this is the one he's had preloaded for everybody. No, thank you. You're fired.
1: See, if this is the joke he settled on, I wonder what other jokes he did like just did not hit us hard. And he's like, "Fuck it, I'm going to work blue a little bit here." If you have to take a leak, help you find your cock. And then people are like, "Whoa, <laughs> push back, Jerry." And then he's like, "All right, zipper." This is a a guy who could have been one of these memorable characters or whatever. He just needed one more line when uh, when Theo and uh, Carl show up. Uh, you know, he could have been like. Hey, Velly, just some sort of shit headline there, and he would have been again one of the classic um, diehard uh, supporting characters. But David, what I'm talking about is as this party seems to be, you know, going all right. Two dudes show up. They're talking about what happened in last night's Lakers game, and uh, what they do is they shoot the the front desk dude, who of course is, you know, we'll call him Zipper Guy, Zipper Joke Guy, (laughs) uh, because it looks like something's going on here. David, this things are starting to happen here at Nakatomi Tower.
0: Oh, Mac, things are popping off, so enter Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, and his group of, let's say, terrorists. While the phone lines are being cut, Hans and his crew take the Christmas party hostage, including their boss, Mr. Takagi, played by James Shigeta. Hans expects Mr. Takagi to give up the access codes for the vault holding over $600 million in bear bonds. But when Takagi confesses that he doesn't know the codes, Hans shoots him dead. Witness to the murder is one Mr. John McLean. John was able to escape to the 30th floor. No time for shoes, but now he's got to work on Christmas Eve, bah humbug.
1: So in comes the Gruber gang, and the takeover starts. The Gruber gang comes in, and they're firing guns in the air to try and scare everyone together. You know, John McClane is like, oh, what's going on? And he runs kind of just to scope it out. And right here, we, we cut to Ellis, and, he, and Ellis is like talking to himself. He's like, stay calm. Everything's going to be fine. This is the only time I actually feel bad for Ellis, this poor cokehead who, you know, all he wanted to do was uh, go to a party cooked out of his mind, and now the fact that he's on drugs and this is happening, that
0: sucks. (laughs) That's, I had never thought of that until you brought it up. Oh, man, he has to be sweating the appearance of the cops the entire time. It's like, okay, terrorist means cops. I'm busted. I'm so screwed. Like, okay, this is amazing.
1: It's like, oh, man, how was that coke I sold you, Ellis? It's like, well, I'll be honest with you. The second I did it, terrorist came. Uh, (laughs) So, Yeah. See, so yeah, my, his buzz uh, was killed, but but David, you know John McClane, who's like oh, son of a bitch who works, was making those fists with his toes, like his little seatmate told him, and so when the shooting starts, he's he is uh, barefoot.
0: He's barefoot in the bathroom. He has no time to to put his shoes on, so he runs out of the the bathroom. He runs out of the thirtieth floor and up the stairs. And Mac Blake, I want to establish something here in the grand tradition of Han shot first, and the grand tradition of. There was plenty of room on that door for both Rose and Jack. Mac, John had plenty of time to put his shoes on. Let's stop lying to ourselves and pretending that he was so rushed that he couldn't have put shoes on. He absolutely could have.
1: Yeah, the story needs to be here that he was so flustered that he forgot
0: to put his shoes on.
1: But I feel like one step on that cold 1980s corporate floor, he would have been like, oh, cool, I need my shoes. Or at least some slippers.
0: Here's my punch-up then. My first one's going to be, let's have more of a Tex Avery John McClain. I want to see like, exaggerated, like, whoop, 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 like, you know, sort of uh, tapping around, uh, hippity-hopping on his feet, and then just indecisively running up the stairs.
1: And, like, Bruce Willis is great in this movie. And matching Bruce Willis, and probably even besting him, is Alan Rickman in the role of Hans Gruber. Uh, easily one of the best, you know, action movie villains, or just any kind of movie villain, because, you know, he's everything you want a villain to be. Uh, you know, short of being, like, a physical threat to John McClane, he's smart, He's engaging and he's fucking funny.
0: And I think this is the first time I had ever seen Alan Rickman. I don't recall anything before this, but man, Alan Rickman was born for this role. Like, I could easily pull audio for every time he talks and just say, hey, listen to this. Listen to this Alexander line. Hey, listen to the way he says it's Christmas. Like, I love it. Alan Rickman, top notch. He is an essential part of this movie. Yeah,
1: he's kind of got a way of like talking, like visually his mouth is like doing something interesting too. I don't know how to describe it. But yeah, he's great. He's super funny. And, and the fact that there's like a little bit of a turn here where, you, you know, he starts off thinking he's a terrorist, but and really he's just there for, for money. Uh, you know, that's, that's interesting, too. But as the Gruber gang settles everyone down, they're like, we're looking for Mr. Takagi. And this gang knows everything about Mr. Takagi, except what he fucking looks like. They give his like complete bio some stuff that like, I don't even, was that an article? Did you talk to his mom? The research is impeccable, except you never asked for a fucking photo, because they cannot find him.
0: I think this is the one bit of hubris on the Hans Gruber gang's part, because they probably thought painstakingly about every little aspect, and then they said, okay, when we go get Mr. Takagi, he's going to be the old Asian guy. And then they get there, and there's like five or six old Asian guys, and they're like, uh, let's stall. Let's see if we can guess who one of them out of here by by saying more stuff about them.
1: And this movie is like, you know, two hours long, and- it's weird to say this about Die Hard, but it's very economical sometimes with the like, character moments. Like when, you know, Hans is like, you know, Mr. Takagi, looking for a Takagi. <laughs> Takagi's in here. Holly reaches over and like puts her hand on Mr. Takagi's arm as if to say like, no, do not go forward on this. And in that moment, it tells you like a lot about Holly. Like number one, the fact that she's not like fucking freaking out. The fact that she has her head about her Enough to tell Mr. To like try to protect her boss. You know, mm. it tells you that like you know she's cool, she's calm, she's a leader. Y- and you might be feeling weird about this job, like oh uh, she only wants it because of the money. They don't get her here. I'm I'm on John's side. Boo! I hate the way uh, Japan and Los Angeles. But like the fact that she cares enough about Mr. Takagi to like protect him in that moment. I care about Mr. Takagi in that moment. It's like a very quick, very small thing. But it, it says a lot about Holly and her relationship to her job. I, I loved it.
0: Yeah, I, I thought Bonnie Bedelia was great in this in this movie. I thought Holly is a great role. She is the perfect complement to John McClain, where John McClain is more of a hothead. She is calm and cool. She is confident in her own right, you know, as evidenced by her traveling across the country to to take this job. But no, I, I thought they did a fantastic job by not making her a pushover and making her strong in her own right.
1: And yeah, just for in case anyone is curious, I'm totally Team Holly, okay? Because she moved to take this job, which probably pays a ridiculous amount. And uh, there's no way that John McClane's New York City cop job pays more. And it's also more dangerous. It's just the fact that that's his whole identity. I can't envision a world without that. I'm not moving, Holly. I'm. I'm go ahead and you do what's best for your family and I will do what is best for me. But Mr. Takagi does, uh, you know, say like, I'm Takagi. And they go into this room, you know, and after some very funny uh, jokes about where Hans Gruber is like, I could talk about industrialization and men's fashion all day. However, I got to get down to business. And they look up something on a computer. Now, David, one of my favorite things for movies is how loud computers are. Let's hear a little bit of uh, this computer here. <laughs>
0: You don't have that code? That's
1: just numbers appearing on a screen. That's not like a, a video game or anything. It's just this weird thing where it's like, oh, uh, the public only knows the data is appearing on a computer screen unless there's a beep beep, weep beep happening at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's great. No notes. <laughs> Please make more movies that way now, even though technology has improved and nothing makes noise anymore.
1: That is true. It's like when you're on a,
0: uh, it's like, oh, let me bring up this Instagram picture. <laughs>
1: So here, Hans Gruber's like, yeah, Mr. Takagi, we, we want the fucking $600 million in bearer bonds that are here. And he's like, we're not terrorists. We're just crooks. And he's like, now there's some locks here to uh, this vault, and we need the code. You'd save us a lot of time if you gave us the code. What's the code, Mr. Takagi? And Mr. Takagi's like, oh, I don't I don't know the code. And you know, he's like, uh, I'm going to shoot you if you don't give me the fucking code. And Mr. Takagi's like, I don't know it. And they fucking shoot Takagi David. Do you believe that Takagi really did not know the code or do you think he was just bluffing, not believing that Hans Gruber would actually shoot him?
0: That's a really good question. I don't think he knew the code. That is what my belief was when I first watched it. I don't think my belief has changed. I have to imagine that Takagi understands risk assessment and understands that, hey, if someone gets away with my bonds, they're probably insured. I don't know. Rich people have a way of getting money when they lose money. But no, I don't think he, I truly don't think he knew the
1: code. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm still on the fence. Like the way he was like, hey, come on. I don't know it. Call the chairman in Tokyo and he'll tell you. It's just, there's something kind of like fake about it that, you know, because I'd like to think that if he knew the code, he would not be willing to die for this company. But I I don't know. I'm. I'm that's interesting. Listeners, uh, find us on Discord after this episode comes out. Do you think Mr. Takagi knew the code? But David, if he did know the code and Takagi did tell Hans Gruber and gang the code they need to start unlocking this vault, do you think Hans Gruber was going to kill Mr. Takagi anyway? And I ask that because killing Takagi did serve a purpose beyond just, like, you know, threatening and getting the code. It you By shooting the boss, it you know, tells the rest of the hostages that we are not fucking around.
0: Yeah, I get that. But if Takagi had lived, I think he could have done that telling too. I don't think they would have killed him anyway. I I have to imagine that Hans Gruber is such a professional about being a thief. His goal is to take the 600 million. I'm not so sure murder fit into the into his intricate plans, unless it didn't, I'm just missing it. But I think if he could have gotten away with cracking that safe without killing anybody, he absolutely would have.
1: I mean, I think it was always in their plans to blow up the hostages later, uh, mm-hmm. you know, take out the FBI. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you would find not killing Takagi here that he could have accomplished. His threats, because if somebody got out of the lane later, he just would have shot them. That's something I actually like about the Gruber gang: is they absolutely do not give a shit about killing anybody.
0: You know, it's funny. I, I had not really connected it to the end of the movie. I think with them knowing, hey, all of these people are going to die anyway. I think they become a lot more expendable in that instance. So maybe he would have killed him. That's that kind of bumps me out. I thought he was more of a gentleman than that.
1: Uh, maybe he wouldn't have Hans Gruber. Definitely enjoyed his little like back and forth with Mister Takagi, like you know, talking about suits and whatnot. So I think. In terms of somebody who just likes to hear themselves talk, which Hans Gruber does, that uh, he would have kept Takagi around a little bit longer.
0: But, Max, something that drove me nuts about this moment where Takagi gets shot by Hans Gruber is that John McClane happens to be in the conference area, too. He's rolling around on the floor playing pretend, but he's, <laughs> but he's startled by the shots and he says to himself, Argyle, tell me you heard those shots and you're calling the cops right now. And they cut to Argyle in the limo, blasting music and getting drunk. But, I mean, come on. That line is clearly for the movie. You clearly want to check in on Argyle, but John McClane, you can't be this stupid. You can't truly think that someone is going to be in a parking garage and hear a gunshot 30 stories up and say, Hark, what is that? A gunshot? Beep, boop, 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 boop. Like, come on, John. Yeah,
1: but I mean, look, any excuse to check in with Argyle, uh, I'll take. Because what do we learn about Argyle? He's like trying to
0: to get a booty call, make it happen on his phone. His boss thinks he's on his way to Vegas, which I guess he doesn't have to drop off the limo first. But with the gang's hacker Theo, played by Clarence Gilliard Jr., working on cracking the Nakatomi safe, John gets to work killing terrorists. John sends a message on a body to Hans and tries to get help to Nakatomi. When pulling the fire alarm doesn't work, John goes to the roof to call for help and ends up in a shootout with the dead terrorist brother Carl, played by Alexander Godunov. After a harrowing escape down an elevator shaft, John kills a few more baddies and is finally able to get the attention of LAPD Sergeant Al Powell, played by Reginald VelJohnson by dropping a corpse on his police cruiser. Bienvenidos a la fiesta, amigo. So David,
1: the Gruber gang, these guys are killers, right? Because Carl's brother, the other Swedish giant, what's his name?
0: I forget. I feel like it was mentioned once, but I just kept calling him Jeffrey Dahmer.
1: Okay, so the guy looks like a giant stretched out Jeffrey uh, Dahmer. You know, he's like, oh, please come out wherever you are. I will not hurt you. And then as soon as he turns the corner, you know, (laughs) like unloads the gun, basically saying like, yeah, he will hurt you. He'll fucking kill you. But John McClane gets the drop on him. And coming up here, this is one of my favorite lines in the movie. Because Die Hard is full of like little lines. You can kind of just like say to yourself again and again. But this one I just think about all the time.
0: Drop it, dickhead. It's the police. You won't hurt me. Oh yeah? Why not? Because you're a policeman. There are rules for policemen.
1: It's true. There are rules for policemen. <laughs> he, he says that in like a, a way where he sounds like a character like a children's show. Here comes a policeman. Policeman begins with P. (laughs) There are rules. Yeah. Here we have our first fight. It is not a full-on action set piece, I would say, but it is a fight. And, you know, McLean here, he does win the fight, but he wins kind of like in an odd way. They both tumble down the stairs together and he's holding on to not Jeffrey Dahmer's neck here and that neck snaps. And so McLean wins. And so we're able to get like a victory from McLean, but it's still a victory that where he still feels like outmatched, right? Like if he had gone in there, like, you know, John Wick style, like, shoved a pencil in this dude's brain or uh, beat him to death with a library book, you would have been like, oh man, these bad guys are no match for McLean." But the fact that he kind of pulls out like a surprise victory here, or at least like one,
0: an unexpected one,
1: you know, we get a victory for McLean, and it doesn't, we still keep him as a severe underdog.
0: Yeah, a lot of the John McClain action in this movie, how am I saying this? It It reminds me a lot of, or it feels a lot like an ancestor to Atomic Blonde, where one of the things we liked about Atomic Blonde was the way that movie was able to show fatigue and vulnerability and a humanness to actually getting hit and wounded and shot at and cut and stuff like that. This movie felt that same way to me, or at least this scene felt that same way to me, where, yeah, you're absolutely right. John McClane feels maybe not outmatched, but evenly matched. He definitely feels like he's in a fight. And then to tumble down the stairs and kind of get lucky, like I remember that feeling of of luck. When I first watched this movie, it was where, by the grace of God, you know, thankfully, Dahmer wasn't hanging onto your neck or you'd be dead. But that's the appeal of the movie. It's that, hey, that could have been me falling down the stairs and narrowly avoiding death. Like That's that's what works about this movie.
1: And McClane sends a message to Hans. He sends the body of not Jeffrey Dahmer down, and he famously writes on that corpse's sweater, ho, 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 now I have a machine gun. And look, this is a famous part of Die Hard, but I, I think it's interesting because it's not a move you're used to an action hero doing kind of like playing little, you know, taunting little cat and mouse games with bad guys. That's something that like, oh, kind of John McClane can do because he's not some like honor-bound samurai here who's like, you know, fighting a war of honor. He's trying to fucking, you know, get in these dudes' heads because he's uh, just kind of making this shit up as he goes. But as Hans and his gang are like talking to each other after seeing this corpse, you know, you see McClane, he's like, he's actually on top of the elevator, the car of the elevator. And as the terrorists are talking to each other, you see the McLean is writing down all the terrorist names on his arm, basically trying to get like a better sense of like how many bad guys he's up against. And I thought that was fucking cool, David.
0: I thought it was fucking cool, especially when you consider that the body is means to an end. Like he, re- John McLean, just really wanted to get people talking. So he sends the brother down in the elevator. He's hiding atop the elevator and writing these names down. And thank God that Hans was in a sharing mood because. In this moment, he decides to use everyone's names where like, go call Carl and tell him his brother's dead. Franco, you and Fritz go to the roof and do this. Like, you could just point to people. You don't have, to. Mac, it's like if I were to say your name every time I talk to you, could you imagine uh, what kind of hell that would be to listen to, Mac? David, I could not.
1: Now, after they find this body, Hans Gruber's like, uh, someone go tell Carl his brother is dead. And Carl here, again, played by Alexander uh, Godenough or Enough, whatever you say his name, It's so funny that he's the muscle in this movie. Like He's like the ultimate level boss before you get to the bad guy. Because if you look at him, he's just a big Swedish dude, right? That's it. He's not like some amazing fighter. And the weird thing is, he's kind of got this vibe about him. I was watching and I was like, he kind of feels like a college professor. He almost feels like, and then I was like, oh, wait, I know where I know this dude from. My family, David, I don't know why, they were big fans of the movie Money Pit. You I've bet, seen Muddy Pit quite a bit. And in this movie, Shelley Long, she's like in an orchestra. She's like a professional cellist or violinist or something like that. Yeah. And there's another dude in the orchestra who's like very suave. And like, he's trying to woo Shelley Long away from Tom Hanks. And the suave European musician is played by the same guy, Alexander Godenoff. So yeah, it's he's a weird choice as like the heavy in this movie
0: yeah it's kind of a casting coup though if i can use comedy case because you're hiring him essentially because everyone remembers him from money pit and they're like oh i don't remember that movie very much i remember i hated you and i don't really remember <laughs> why is it your look is it the way you carry yourself is it the fact that you are a professionally trained ballet dancer and that makes me insecure i don't know i just know that i hate you carl
1: Yeah, I just fact-checked that He played uh, Shelley Long's ex-husband, a self-absorbed conductor who's returned early from Europe. Oh, I I guess. (laughs) Wasn't Dolph Lundgren also like a, you know, something about him, like an unlikely action hero given his background? Was he also a dancer?
0: Oh, I don't know. I think he ended up becoming a very good dancer. I know he like hosted a talk show in Belgium. Does that sound about right? All
1: I know is that if you're a uh, very like masculine Scandinavian man, We Americans, males are very threatened by you. And so you're like, oh, you're an evil person. It's like, I just like, I like watching butterflies and I enjoy the collecting of stamps and possibly uh, some ballet dancing. And they're
0: like, yes, save it, you evil fuck. It's the difference between the 80s and now as far as action movie casting where, look, Mikhail Baryshnikov had more than one movie made where he was the star. That's bananas and should never happen.
1: Is Alexander Skarsgård, I mean, he's another giant Swedish hunk or uh, Scandinavian hunk. Oh, no, he's Swedish. Is he just a gentle soul who we've made be this monster in all these movies?
0: If you're Nordic and have amazing calves, then we've got a a stereotype for you.
1: I was thinking I'd play like a a university professor and they're like, yeah, whatever, murderer. But John does manage to get a phone call off to uh, 911 and they're like, oh, let's see which uh, cop car is in the area. And what cop is in the area? David, it's Al Pal, played by Reginald Vel
0: Johnson. Carl Winslow himself, another great supporting role. He is perfect for this. He is that perfect combination of sweet and kind, but also you don't want to upset him. Like, that's that's what you want in a, in a cop on the outside. I've
1: only seen him play cops. He was a cop in Ghostbusters for like, uh, you know, like one second. He was Tom Hanks' cop partner in Turner and Hooch, and of course he was a cop on Family Matters. I think the reason why this guy got to play a cop so much is because this is what we we all want a cop to be like, you know what I mean?
0: Oh, if he had shown up twirling a baton and just like telling people to run along, that's all I needed. That's, that's That was the only thing left on my pleasant cop bingo card.
1: Yeah, because he makes you feel safe. It's not like, you know, when uh, Harvey Keitel shows up with a cop, you're like, oh no, someone's getting shot and evidence is getting planted. <laughs> but David, when we first meet you know, Al Pal here, he's leaving a convenience store. And, and David, look, there's a piece of technology, I'm going to call it technology, that is referenced on a sign in this convenience store that I'm very interested in. Uh, Al Pal walks right past uh, some sort of sign that says, make your own milkshake, 99 cents. What?
0: Now, wait a second. He's in a convenience store and not the world's fair, right? There's no reason this future technology should exist there.
1: Yeah. How do you think that? I mean, it's probably bad, but at the same time, I can make my own milkshake. My own, I can, I can make my own milkshake. I'm not telling someone else to make it. Everything is there. So I make the milkshake. Why do we still have this?
0: For less than 20 nickels, you bet I will. But if I had to guess, as someone who has worked with milkshake machines in the past, they never work. They always break. And if you put them in the hands of normies, they will not last 30 seconds.
1: Ah, so it's like the same reason the, the roads aren't flooded with DeLoreans. Uh, because those, <laughs> those 1980s evictions <laughs> <laughs> do not work. But as John McClane is on the roof uh, yelling at our emergency response operators here, the bad guys come on the roof to shoot him. It's our first full-on action set piece that we'll call Roof Escape. And David, a lot of the action in this movie, it's not like a head-to-head fight for the most part. It's pretty much just kind of like John McClane surviving and trying to get away. The gunplay, we're not anywhere close to approaching like John Woo levels, but it has like a real panicky feel to it that I enjoyed the set piece.
0: It's a terrific set piece in the sense that it fits with the movie. You know, all of the action in this movie, or rather I should say none of the action in this movie is a centerpiece. You know, John McTiernan didn't make this movie just for this fight or this special effect or this stunt. It all serves the movie and it blends seamlessly with the actual narrative of the movie. And I think that's why it works so well. You're absolutely right. It's it's perfectly tense. You worry about John McClane because he, he's been established as a vulnerable human being, just like the rest of us. Like, I remember being a kid watching this movie and every time you're in a big building, you're going to pretend you're diehard. And this is just, this is a movie that preys on the imagination of dudes. And this is one of those action set pieces that just feels like something you could pretend to be a part of.
1: Just don't emulate it in front of Officer Al Pal, kids. That's all I got to (laughs) say to you. But David, it's fitting, you know, because the sort of panicky walls kind of closing and feeling this fight. The climax of this action set piece is not, you know, John McClane finally killing somebody. It ends in this elevator shaft where John McClane is like hanging by the strap of his machine gun. And that strap is like slowly coming off as he makes a last like breath, you know, grab at this air duct. It's a very tense scene, and it, you know it's funny because we do tend to think of of action in terms of like you know violence or fighting, and the fact that a lot of very, the standout action moments in the this movie are stuff like that. Just like you know, you have to pull off a jump, like you're swinging by a, a hose, a fire hose, and the you know you got to break through glass at the very last second. Like it's you know it's like this uh, American Ninja Warrior obstacle course that you know John McClane has to solve in order to
0: live. He's not easy to kill, David. He's not. He is not easy to kill, but also he's not Batman. Like there's, there are some parts in this movie where you have to suspend a little disbelief. I think this is one of them where he's jumping from one air duct to another down an elevator shaft. Uh, there's another moment here where he he escapes by stopping a fan and climbing through the fan and then reactivating the fan. And Carl's just flummoxed by this. Like he has no idea how the, how this this human could have done that. But look, I love this movie a lot. There are a few moments in my notes where I had to remind myself he's not Batman.
1: Yeah, I mean <laughs> the fact that he's able to hold on to this like this very small ledge, just the tips of his fingers. At least that's another punch up <laughs> if you wanted to put it there. He could just be like "fuck," <laughs> just something <laughs> to indicate just how hard this was because yeah. he makes enough noise to where Carl is like he's in the you know he's in the elevator shaft. But of course, by the time he looks down there, he's already crawled. John McClane's crawled to an air duct. But while McLean is uh, crawling through the air ducts, uh, talking about having laughs in California, Al arrives at Nakatomi, and he talks to the fake security guard, Eddie. Eddie, of course, famously looks just like Huey Lewis, but he is not. So Eddie's like, what can I do for you, officer? And Al's like, "I, you know, I got some uh, call that something's going down here. And Eddie's like, oh, we've been having problems with the system. Go ahead and take a look around. I'm just going to sit here and watch uh, USC versus Notre Dame on my uh, my little guard station here. It's like Notre Dame, uh, you know, is on top of uh, USC by a a touchdown. And Eddie, pretending to be a fake security guard here, really part of the Gruber gang, Eddie goes, God damn it, I had bet 50 bucks on these guys. David, did Eddie really have money bet on the game? Or was that just his character that he cooked up to blend in or, you know, have Al not think much about him?
0: That is 100% a character he cooked up and a character note that he cooked up. He delivers it so directly that it feels like he's watching the game on tape. It feels like that game's not even on. He brought it with him just to have something to do. Like, I don't know. But but yeah, there's there's no way he was betting on that game. I think that's something Hans coached him on. I mean, I, I got the
1: feeling that Eddie was like a he wasn't using a fake voice. He was some like southern dude or something like that. But yeah, it's almost like Terminator level of like, Wolfie's fine, dear. Why don't you come home? <laughs> But you know what, though? Part of me thinks he did have money on the game because I think if you're a degenerate gambler, like Eddie was, that he was like, all right, I'm pulling off this Nakatomi deal. And if it doesn't pay off, this bet on USC, <laughs> this $50 bet is really going to come through. But here we get another quick action set piece because the bad guys catch up to John McClain in this meeting room, which uh, we'll call this action set piece Meeting Room Melee. You know, this is a, another little famous moment here. You know, John McClain's like crawling, you know, through this weird zigzagging table. Using it as cover, and then the bad guy is like, you know, speechifying, and John McClane shoots him. And this whole action set piece, you know, Al is driving away, and to get his attention, John McClane throws the corpse of the bad guy out the window, and it lands on Al Pal's car. And as soon as it hits his car, the bad guys like open fire. They're just trying to fucking shoot this cop car. During this chaos is when John McClane delivers one of his famous lines, which is, "Welcome to the party, pal." And when I think back about this line, I remembered it just the line. I remember him like Mm -hmm. looking through the glass window. It's kind of a splash page moment. This movie's got a lot of them. You know, looking through this broken glass window, looking down uh, and saying, delivering this, you know, welcome to the party pal line. But what I did not remember is that this line takes place like during just a fucking chaotic scene. Like Al is like freaking out in the car. All the Gruber gang are like opening fire on him. And just like the way the the line is delivered, even though I knew it was coming and it's kind of a a worn out line, it's fucking great. And I marked out. It's my first mark out moment watching Die Hard.
0: That's awesome. I struggled a little bit with recapturing the energy of stuff like this, just stuff that's been burned into our collective memories. I didn't quite mark out, but hearing you talk about it, yeah, that absolutely makes a lot of sense, especially... the. I imagine this is something that would have popped off the page for me if I was reading the script, because like you said, it's chaos. It's, you know, the building is in chaos. Al is is being brought into this chaos. And then you've got your lead character saying, welcome to the party, pal. You might as well just start playing welcome to the jungle. I completely understand this sort of, oh, you're in hell now. Like that's, that's kind of awesome.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, like that, the line that was for the audience, like, come on, oh girl, tell me you heard those shots. That does set up this next moment, because we, the audience, might be wondering, well, surely Argyle heard this. <laughs> but through the chaos, we cut to a quick shot of Argyle, sunglasses on, in the parking garage, music cranked up, just having a grand old fucking time. And it's such a quick reaction shot of Argyle, very fucking funny. Argyle <laughs> continues to rule.
0: But Mac, who should be listening to Al Powell's distress call over CB, but blowhard reporter Thornburg played by William Atherton, who cancels his dinner plans to investigate the developing situation in Nakatomi Plaza. John and Hans get to know each other over Walkie, and then John and Al have their turn. Deputy Chief Dwayne Robinson arrives, played by Paul Gleason, and Holly takes over as the leader of the hostages. Thornburg arrives just in time because the LAPD's assault vehicle gets blown up real good. This is too much for sleazy co-worker Ellis, who inserts himself into the negotiations, but doesn't last long.
1: Yeah, when the police come, you know, their sirens can be heard. And we we cut to Ellis real quick for Ellis to deliver the line. Yeah, I never thought I'd be happy to hear that sound, which just, again, like, <laughs> it's such a, we want to cut to Ellis for the perfect line. He delivers it. We're moving on. It's just, you just got all these great little moments from these side characters. That's another one. And this is the scene where Hans and uh, McClane start to talk. Hans is like, what do I call you? Who do you think you are? Fucking John Wayne. And he's like, no, I was always partial to Roy Rogers. And he delivers, yippee ki motherfucker, which is funny because for th- that line to become the catchphrase of the Die Hard series, and here in this movie, I can tell you this, they did not expect it to be. Because the way he delivers it, it's with no gusto. It's just kind of like a little throwaway, like, yippee ki motherfucker, like, you know, just kind of like playing along, you know, taunting. It's definitely not this like rallying cry, badass kill line that it becomes, you know, later in the series.
0: Yeah, it's another one of those things. We talk about this a lot where... Sometimes it's not the thing that upsets me, it's the fans of the thing. Like like you said, this line is completely innocuous. It happens in the middle of the movie, only for us to have a callback later toward the end. But the fact that bros, for lack of a better term, have latched onto that and made it a rallying cry and have made it this kind of douchey thing to say... It ruins it a little. But in the moment, yeah, halfway through this movie, it's really more of a laugh line than anything else.
1: Yeah, it definitely, again, was not meant to be on a t-shirt the way that Bruce Willis delivers the line. But that's, I guess, where it ended up.
0: Yeah. But meanwhile, you've got Hans camping out in Holly's office. And then here comes Holly. Uh, She has been picked to be the leader. There's a very great exchange where Hans asks, what idiot put you in charge? And she responds with, you did when you shot my boss. Holly is bringing the tood. In this scene, she is not scared of Hans. There's not a moment where he strikes fear in her. I think this is a great moment for Holly. I think this is a great moment for Bonnie Bedelia. It, it establishes her as someone who's not necessarily going to be fucked with.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's another example. I mean, like you said, she's, you know, cool and calm under pressure. You know, she's trying to look out for people. This idea that, you know, she's a damsel in distress and must be rescued by John. I mean, it's true. He's trying to free the hostages as part of you know, fighting back against these criminals. But Holly's not like sitting in a tower saying, oh, woe is me. She's uh, being a proactive person as well. You definitely get the sense that she is uh, an intimidating person in her own right. Now, this segment is kind of action light in terms of John McClane action, but that's because we start to see these like systems go into place, right? Like the other dominoes start to fall. Like, okay, here come the cops, which means here comes the news crews, which here comes the FBI. You know, what do the cops do in this situation? Well, and also the fact that you know, Hans Gruber and the Gruber gang have thought about these things. Now we need to set these plans into motion. And you also meet the shitty reporter here, William Atherton. And we also get to meet, you know, uh, Al Pal's boss, Paul Gleason, who's, you know, again, also very funny in this movie. But however, the police do attempt a raid on uh, Nakatomi, which includes like the SWAT vehicle. And that's when the bad guys pull out the fucking bazooka. And here we definitely get, some action
0: yeah this whole thing builds so well you're absolutely right it almost culminates with the news crews arriving at the same time that the lapd is using their swat vehicle uh, because it gives hans an opportunity to show off what he can do and he orders his men to pull out a rocket launcher and as soon as the rv that uh, theo calls it as soon as the rv pulls up to the steps of nakatomi they kablooey the hell out of that thing this is going to be my first markout moment it's such a cool shot. You know, we talk about splash page moments for this movie. Just the shot of the missile going from the window of Nakatomi down to the RV and the RV exploding, a glorious explosion. I'm a big sucker for kablooies. and this is my first markout moment.
1: And the fact that McClain and Hans Gruber are sharing a frequency over these walkie-talkies, you know, it keeps these people who are physically not close to each other. It keeps them connected throughout the entire movie. Cause yeah, the kablooie, the uh, the SWAT vehicle, you know, McLean gets on the walkie-talkie, he's like, Hodge. You, you got him, like, let him pull back so the, the men can get out of that flaming take alive. And then Hans, you know, he's like, hit him again, which is basically just a straight fuck you to John McClane, uh, which is great. And then, you know, John McClane's like, I know what will fix the situation. These detonators and this C4 explosive that I got off of, uh, you know, not Jeffrey Dahmer. I will now uh, throw this down the elevator shaft, causing a huge explosion. David, what'd you think about this?
0: Well, Mac, I'll tell you what I thought. In fact, I'm going to bring back an old segment that uh, we haven't used for the past few episodes. Mac, what's the plan here? Because if I understand correctly, you know, if if I am to deduce what John McClane was thinking, he thought, hey, rather than put that RV in danger of being shot again by that missile, I'll send them a warning. I'll clear everybody out. So I'm going to drop this C4. It's going to explode. And that explosion is going to scare everybody into retreating. However, that's a big explosion. And I think... Paul Gleason even mentions at some point that John McClane's explosion took out two of his men. What was the plan here? How does that help, John I don't McClane? Know.
1: Because when he put it, when he was making his little like bomb, I was like, oh, does he know what floor they're on? And he's going to time it so <laughs> it explodes right when no, he's just fucking dropping it. That easily could have killed his wife. Yeah, there was no plan. It was it, really weird. Really weird. And it, it, all it added was another explosion to the movie. Yes. But then Ellis is like, I've had enough. I'm gonna save us before your husband gets us killed, Holly. And he's like, "Hey, uh, sprekenzi talk." And this is this is an amazing moment by Ellis. He decides to tell Hans that he can help him out, and it's just he, you know, he's like, "Hans, I'm your white knight, booby." Just it's just fucking great. So Hans lets Ellis get on the walkie-talkie with John McLean. John, I told him all about You, I told you them. You were my guest at the party, and like. He he goes back and forth. He's like either on the walkie or he's making the smar- most smarmy face in the world to Hans. And at one point, Ellis gives Hans a thumbs up. I almost marked out. I loved it so fucking much. And my favorite part of this scene, David, is Carl brings him a Coke in a glass. <laughs> I wish it had been a Diet Coke, but we can't have everything we want in life. You know what I mean?
0: This is a terrific scene. I almost marked it as well, just because of the existence of this scene. I, you know, from the from the beginning of it, when Ellis comes to the office and Carl has a moment where he reaches for his gun and Hans waves him off. I love that. From that all the way to pretty much the moments leading up to his death where he's talking to John on the walkie. He's urging John, pleading with John, come on, tell him you know me. You know, we're old pals. Play along. And he gets no response from John. So. Ellis just makes a face like, what are you going to do? And what's Hans going to (laughs) do? Shoot him in the head. I loved it so much. This is terrific.
1: Yeah, and he's like, Hans, come on. It's not method acting. Put the gun away. John McLean's like, Ellis, you fucking idiot. Tell them you don't know me. They will kill you. And sure enough, they do. Now, David, look, we all knew Ellis was going to die because we've seen this movie before. And because Ellis is like such a smarmy, shitty cokehead and he's so cocky about it, it's kind of fun. But David, on the show, we talk about people signing their murder permission slips. That's mm-hmm. of course when a character usually like a um, you know a non-villain when a character does something in a shitty way or acts shitty to where when that character gets murdered we don't feel bad about their death. I enjoyed Ellis's murder because of it just was funny, but did Ellis as a character ever sign a permission slip?
0: No, not ever. He is he walked that line. He was certainly smarmy and sleazy, but he never did anything overtly shitty. So this is just pure enjoyment on our parts. This is there's no satisfaction of yeah, get him. This is just hey man, it was fun watching that guy get killed. <laughs> I, I I don't know. It's it's a weird it's a really weird phenomenon to enjoy the death of someone you're actively rooting for.
1: I have to think maybe the first time we saw this movie, the fact that Gruber kills Ellis here may have scared us a little bit or something or mm-hmm. or you know, found it unsettling. I mean, now at this point because you know, Ellis, is like the character is like written to be murdered, that it uh, it works. But yeah, I don't know. I, I agree though. I don't think he ever did anything so shitty. They're like, yeah, kill this guy. Yeah. But yes, but Dave, so one more thing I want to mention here is at some point when Deputy Chief Dwayne Robinson shows up, he calls Al Pal, he refers to him as Pal, P-A-L at some point. <laughs> Just the hell that Al Pal must live in. The fact that every time I hear someone say Pal, he's like, you talking to me? because David, my name is a uh, one syllable Mac. And if somebody around me goes, huh, I'll be like, you're talking to me. Like, I will think that's my name. So the fact that his, how pal's name is so close to pal. If like, Hey pal, he's like, do I know you? It's like, no, what the, no stupid. What a, just what a hell that must be.
0: Yeah. And especially coming from someone named Mac where in like the forties and fifties, that was all cab drivers called anybody. Hey Mac, get out of the road. Like you really dodged a bullet with the with the era in which you were born.
1: Yeah, I did, for a lot of reasons, because I'm looking at my legs and, oh boy, they're thirsty for polio. Oh, thank God that <laughs> vaccine was around when I was alive, because, oh God, these legs were just made for those braces.
0: So Hans gives his fake busywork demands to the police and heads to the roof to make sure John hasn't run off with his explosives. But who should Hans run into? But holy shit, it's John McClane. Good thing Hans took those improv classes. This leads to a shootout on the 33rd floor and a whole lot of broken glass. Meanwhile, FBI agents Johnson & Johnson arrive, played by Robert Davi and Grandel Bush respectively, and take over the law enforcement response. The feds cut off power to the building, but this turns out to be just the Christmas miracle Theo needed to break the seventh and final lock.
1: So when Hans goes up there to check the explosives, he runs into John McClane and thanks to some quick thinking, he goes, oh, you're one of them, aren't you? Which is just the dumbest, most cheesy line anyone could deliver. But he delivers it, David, in this fake American accent, which is just stupid. And what a gift though. The fact that you have your bad guy like, oh, I'll pretend to be like this. I don't know. It's just so fun. And of course, uh, Hans Gruber's American name is, is Bill Clay. It's just... Yeah, This scene is a little cringy, but I also love it, David. I love it.
0: It's a little cringy. It's a little stupid. When I was nine years old and saw this for the first time, it blew my mind. I didn't know that British people could affect their voice to sound American. You're not allowed to do that. What were you looking for? I managed to get out of there. And, uh, well, I was just trying to get up on the roof. and See if I could signal for help, you know. But watching it now, it feels so stupid because... It's very clearly Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman has one of the most unmistakable voices where he's always going to sound like this no matter what. And, oh God, you're one of them, aren't you? Like, it's still gonna be yeah. Alan Rickman. I don't know.
1: It doesn't matter that you're not, he's like, a am Schnell. And then he's like, American. It's the same fucking voice. Uh, <laughs> except, look, I, I never thought I'd say this. His American voice accent is insulting on a level. Yeah. That I did not think, it's like, you think we sound like this, you motherfucker? Like it's, uh yeah. it's. But also, what a gift! What a gift to have this scene in the movie. It's so stupid. It's great. Yeah. The FBI agents show up. They say we're agents Johnson and Johnson. No relation. Very funny. And just in case you're wondering if these guys were dickheads or not, uh one agent Johnson says to uh LAPD, he "Goes when we commandeer men, we'll try and let you know," which is just. Right there, you just get everything you need to know about these guys. They don't give a shit
0: about anybody. Yeah, that's world-class writing right there. You were able to encapsulate the shittiness of this FBI agent in one line. Bravo to you.
1: Back in the roof, John McClane's getting buddy-buddy with his Bill Clay character. And he's like, uh, my name's John McLean. What's your name? And he's like, Clay, Bill Clay. And then you see John McClane cast an eyeball up at like the company directory. And sure enough, there's a name on there that says Clay. And he's like, do you ever fired a gun? And Hans is like, oh, I played paintball once. And he's like, time for the real thing. And he gives Hans, as far as we know, a loaded weapon. It, again, like, we know what's coming. We've seen this movie before. It's famous. But you have to think, when this movie, like, was in theaters for the first time, and John McClane hands Hans Gruber, a.k.a. Bill Clay, <laughs> a loaded weapon, the audience has to be like, what are you doing? No, don't, look out. The call's coming from inside the house. And so when Hans like lowers the gun at McLean, he's like, I'm Hans, stupid. I'm going to fucking kill you now. He pulls the trigger and he goes, click. Oh, what? John McClane's no fool. He fucking gave Bill Clay, gay okay, Hans Gruber, you know, an unloaded weapon here just so he would out himself because you, know, you get the sense that like, John McClane's like, I'm 98% sure this is Hans Gruber, but I'm not going to murder him unless I'm 100% sure. So the moment when you realize that McClane has outsmarted Hans Gruber, John McClane says, "You think I'm fucking stupid, Hans?" And god, damn it, that moment hit for me as my second mark out moment because hell yeah, you think he's fucking stupid, Hans?
0: He's very smart, however, I'm going to interrupt this moment real quick. Uh, hopefully you can answer a question that has been plaguing me all this time. Oh no. Should we know how Hans Gruber knows of the existence of Bill Clay or is that just a million to 1 guess?
1: I think Hans Gruber is prepared for this job. He's fucking done his research. I think Bill Clay is like an executive in the company and he knows it. I think he was just like looking at the roster and he's like, who will know the codes? And he's like, maybe Clay? He's like, no, Takagi. Like, uh, so I think he just like was able to pull that name out of his memory. The fact that there's somebody named like Bill Clay has got a corner office.
0: Okay. That's fine with me. It was just always one of those things that puzzled me. And you know, when you're watching it in the movie, it's really awesome. It. It's almost like he's the devil, where he just was able to pull that <laughs> name out of thin air. Oh my God, Hans Gruber's going to kill us all.
1: And so the elevator opens up. Here comes some bad guys. And all John McClane has to do is hold a gun to Hans Gruber's head and be like, you shoot me, you shoot him, because they're not going to shoot their leader. But instead, what John McClane does, he runs away from Gruber as fast as possible. He's like, no, like, eh, like, you know, just like a strafing move or whatever. But yeah. he's like, no, stay. Ah, stupid. Anyway, now we have an action set piece, another one here. And there's a moment, and you're like, man, you know, like, Die Hard, does it have some choice kills besides Hans Gruber, you know, falling off the building? There's a moment here where, you know, the bad guys are, like, they're standing and shooting, but uh, John McClane is, like, crouched. And he opens fires on a uh, a Gruber gang member's uh, knees, and we see these knees just explode, right? Like, (laughs) Squib packs, blood going everywhere. Apparently his uh, his knees were made out of uh, Hawaiian punch containers because they <laughs> explode. And you see the bad guy after his knees, you know, turn into juice. He takes a dive right through a broken window. And it was such like a moment that I, I loved it again. It was an awesome kill. It's my third Mark out moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, this whole sequence is pretty terrific. It's more playing pretend. You're shooting each other in an office building. And if you've ever had water gun fights, or nerf fights, you have absolutely recreated some sort of diehard shootout. So yeah, this is, this is great.
1: Hans, of course, remembers that John McLean does not have shoes on. He orders Carl to shoot the glass, thus creating a barrier of broken glass that uh, I guess John McLean walks over. We don't know. We just, uh, when the smoke clears, John McLean's not there anymore. Holly knows John McLean is still alive because when the bad guys get back down to the hostage level, she sees that Carl is still fucking pissed and she's like he's still alive and like oh great what a great moment what a great line the fact that holly knows he's still alive and then holly goes no one can make people as mad as john which just fucking ruined the moment for me but that's okay i still like holly
0: no way it it strengthened the moment for me because i like that that's her kink i like that she's turned <laughs> on by this she's hated her husband for months and months and now she's like oh he pisses other people off too well now i'm a little jealous and i want that for myself yeah
1: Yeah, knock me over like a trash can, John. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know.
0: But Mac, John, and Al bro out, and the FBI prepares to ambush a bunch of hostages with attack helicopters. McLean has an epiphany as to why Hans was on the roof, and sure enough, he finds enough C4 to blow up a roof full of hostages. No time for heroics now, though, because Carl wants revenge for the death of his brother. Meanwhile, the shitty reporter blows Holly's cover on a newscast, which Hans is watching. Hans orders all the hostages to the roof, except for Holly. John, by all appearances, kills Carl via chain strangulation and gets to the roof to direct the hostages back down the stairs. When the hostages start filing back in, Hans blows the roof, takes out the FBI helicopter, but not John McClane.
1: So John is talking to Alan in the walkie-talkie, and we see that while they're having their conversation, John McClane is pulling broken glass out of his feet. Now, the fact that he has got bloody feet, it does take John McClane to the next level. Because what do we know about John McClane... He's funny, right? He's kind of charismatic and he's he's a tough guy. But the fact that he is, you know, walked over broken glass and is now going to have to fight with just like these, you know, bloody just chewed up feet. It's like this guy is next level tough. He truly is some sort of diehard. It's definitely like a, a turning point for him where he's sort of climbing that action hero ladder.
0: Oh, you're absolutely right because it's relatable heroics. I, I mean, anyone can imagine having a nail or a piece of glass in their foot. So to have a million shards of glass in your foot and to watch him drag himself into that bathroom, I remember the first time I saw that, that was like a gasp moment where you see him dragging his body into the bathroom. He's leaving a slug trail of blood behind him. You know, going back to what I've said throughout this episode, it's the relatability that makes this work. We can all relate to this moment. We might not have been in shootouts, but we know what we can relate to the kind of pain that he's going through. I think this works great.
1: Yeah, the only way it worked better is if uh, Hans Gruber had thrown a bunch of Legos on the floor and John McLean oh. had stepped on a couple Lego bricks. That, that would have been, I don't know, that may, would have, may have been too much. <laughs> but yeah, Al and John are bro out. Al's like, the reason I'm not a, uh, a street cop anymore is because I shot a kid, which is okay. And John's like, what's going on down there? And then Al Pal responds, ask the FBI. They have the Universal Terrorist Playbook, which we as the audience know that the FBI is playing right into the hands of Hans Gruber by following their protocol and like cutting power to the building, thus enabling Hans Gruber to get past that final lock and into the vault with all the bear bonds. But Al Pal does not know that. So the fact that he's like so dismissive of the FBI and they're, oh, they they know how to do terrorists. is like, maybe they fucking do, Al Pal. I mean, you happen to be right, but also shut up. But FBI does cut the power to the building, thus opening the final lock. So now the bad guys can get into the vault and get all their money. And how do we know this? Because... Ode to Joy starts playing. Now, David, uh, this, I marked out again. And 100% is just the song. But like when the song hits, like, and you see like the vault open up. Say this about diehard villains. Their plans tend to work. The getting away with it part doesn't work. But like the fact that even with John McClane fucking all this stuff up, the plan still worked to where they still got the money. I mean, like, in Speed, you know, what's his name? Dennis Hopper's, like, first plan, whatever, his little elevator thing, it did not work. Like, Mm -hmm. his second plan with the bus, it worked. Like, he got the money, you know, uh, et cetera. He just didn't get away with it. But, like, Die Hard Villains, I mean, I I I haven't seen all the Die Hard movies. Uh, Actually, that's not true. (laughs) I have seen them all. I just don't remember all of them. (laughs) But I feel like Die Hard's, you know, at least two, three, and four. Wait, are there six? At least five. Okay, well, Whatever. The ones that I've seen, the diehard villains, they tend to like, you know, their plan works and just as they're leaving is when they get exploded. But yeah, a really cool moment here as we see Theo and Hans get into the vault and start getting those bearer bonds, whatever the fuck those are.
0: This is a really cool moment. I didn't quite mark out, but it's so goddamn majestic, which is a word I didn't think I'd use to describe a vault opening, but the music swells. There's a spotlight coming from the vault that shines on Hans and Theo There's a fan on, or I guess there's an airlock opened up, but it's blowing their hair. And, you know, on top of this, just the, you know, just the optics of it aside, just the theatrics of it aside, you are dealing with the successful plan. Like you said, we weren't expecting this plan to work as audience members for the first two hours of this movie. So now for the FBI to play right into the enemy's hands, bravo movie. I'm going to keep saying bravo because you're just doing so many goddamn things right.
1: At some point, uh, one of the FBI agents picks up the phone and goes, is Agent Johnson? No, the other one, which just is so (laughs) fucking funny. The fact that they're both named Johnson, it definitely pays off. Now, the conversation that Al Pal is having with John McClain over the walkie-talkie, that's not a private conversation. Like any Mm -hmm. other cop who's out there can like tune into it. And we find out they pretty much all are listening to it. So John McClain's like, I got to go check out the roof because I got a feeling. But hey, if I don't make it out of here, I want you to give a message to my wife. I wanted you to know that I'm sorry, and that I should have supported her more. And and we cut to where the Al Pal is listening, and all the other cops are listening. It's very quiet as they all listen to basically to John McClane uh, shed his toxic masculinity, and he finally gets it. The fact that like it took a insane hostage situation for John to be like, I guess I'm sorry. Like that is insane. But hey. He, at least he got there. You know what I mean?
0: I guess. But when you say it like that, it's, it's almost like John McClane is saying, I'd rather die than apologize. And so <laughs> <laughs> he realizes he's almost dead. And he's like, all right, the, the jig is up. I'm fine. I'm sorry. She never heard me say, I'm sorry.
1: Well, Al Powell's like, Hey man, tell yourself you're going to get out of there. Okay. Now watch your ass. And then John McClane goes oh, "If I'm surviving this. I ain't telling her shit. And then everyone laughs it up because they're all shitty. But John goes up to check on the roof to see that if it is full of explosives, and it is. And you know who's waiting for him up there? It's Carl. It's an action set piece we'll call John McClane versus Carl Fight. Now, one thing I liked about this fight, David, not necessarily the fight choreography, because I don't feel like it was anything special, but what the movie managed to do is, you know, this fight kind of like means something. And that's because Carl knows that John McClane killed his fucking brother. And, you know, John McClane knows that like this, this Carl guy is like bad news. And so instead of a villain and a hero just trying to, like, fight because they got to fight, there's definitely, like, an emotional undercurrent here. And at some point, when John McClane is beating on Carl, he says something like, you should have heard the way your brother begged when I snapped his fucking neck. And I was like, oh, god damn, talking shit while it's going on. Uh, John McClane rules. Uh, you know what I mean? He Maybe he got worn out. Maybe we're all sick of John McClane at this point. But for a while, he ruled.
0: No, this is absolutely a John McClane rally. This is... You're absolutely right. This is a a perfectly motivated villain like Carl is because he's avenging the death of his brother versus a sufficiently tired John McClane. By this point, he is exhausted. He is fighting for his life. And he, you know, you like that line about him sort of taunting Carl. I like the line where he's strangling Carl. He's about to wrap him up in the chains and he says offhandedly, I'm going to fucking cook you and eat you. I get that. I get being that angry where you'll, you'll you'll just say... The most demonic stuff. And you're just like, hey, man, this is, you're at work. Don't talk to your boss that way.
1: But during this fight, we keep cutting away to like what Hans is up to. Because we're doing some of those classic things that I call, I don't know the actual name for him, keep up cutaways. Where we have to, you know, show what's happening in these two different areas. And so we're cutting back and forth. Now, a lot of times I feel like these cutaways hurt fights. I think it works for this Carl fight. Because mm-hmm. the fight between John McClane and Carl is... Like, it's an endurance test. Both these guys are really tired. So when we see them fighting, and then we cut to Hans for like two minutes, and then we cut back to the fight, the fact that the fight is like still going works for it. Like, otherwise you might be like, wait, what happened in those two minutes? Surely John McClane would have won at that point. But no, it, it, it works for this fight. Because again, it's just two dudes just trying to, they got almost nothing left, just kind of trying to, are wearing each other down. And so I, I feel like it works.
0: This very easily could have been the fight in They Live where it lasts for 20 minutes and you're like, okay, you've made a 20 minute long fight. What good is that? But this is, it's using the energy that Hans's story thread is creating, bringing it over to the Carl and John fight. And you've got an excellent exchange of action.
1: The FBI guys are in their helicopter. Very cool shots of the helicopter as it's uh, going through LA. And the FBI guys are like, what do you think? I think we're going to lose about 20% of the hostages tops. And the other guy goes, I can live with that. And what do these FBI guys just do, David? What do they do?
0: They laugh and laugh. Meanwhile, they're signing their permission slip. Cannot wait to watch them die.
1: (laughs) The fact that they do not give a shit about human life, that they're absolutely okay with 20% of the hostages dying, tells me that when they die, I will not care. Uh, There's also (laughs) a really funny line here. Where one of the FBI guys is like, you know, they're in the helicopter. He's like, yeah, just like Saigon, slick. And then the other FBI guy goes, I was in junior high, dickhead, which I don't know what that tells <laughs> us about these characters. But again, perfect, just perfect.
0: <laughs> it tells me that one of them's 23, I think. Nah, I'm <laughs> I going to think about that.
1: But John, yeah, I mean, I, I guess John McClain, you know, he strangles Carl with a chain and he's back up to the roof. He's trying to get the hostages, you know, that were sent up there, trying to get him back down. So he's firing the gun in the air and the FBI guys are firing at them and then all this shit's going on. It's another action set piece we'll call Roofmageddon. Right now, the pacing in this movie rules. I, I was like, I checked the clock and I was like, man, I can't believe this movie's got like 15 minutes left because it's just like, there's still some stuff needs to happen and we're just going bang, 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 bang. And John knows this roof is going to blow. And so he knows he has to get off of it. and So he uses a fire hose to kind of like swing down and he's trying to break the glass on the side of the building. And he starts kicking at it with bloody feet. And, you know, I, I said earlier, this movie's got a lot of splash page moments. This is an amazing one for me because, again, the camera's not even necessarily focused on his feet. But the fact that he's kicking against this window and you can see these streaks of blood coming out of his feet, it's another markout moment for me. Because there's something about it where in this moment, it's a nice mix of, like, the panic of the action coming through. And also just the sense of like, man, this guy really has been beaten to shit.
0: And also the desperation, the desperation of I am falling apart. I am bleeding to death, but I have to break this window. You're absolutely right. I didn't quite mark out in this moment, but you're making a compelling case for every single one of your mark out moments. This is, this is excellent.
1: But Hans blows the roof. The FBI guys get blown with it. Paul Gleason says, we're going to need some more FBI guys, I guess, which is really fucking funny. And then we cut down to the parking garage where Argyle, who's now caught wind of what's going on up there, he sees hacker Theo escaping in some sort of uh, disguised van and he decides to, it's hero time for Argyle.
0: It is hero time. He he T-bones the ambulance, the fake ambulance that Theo's driving. He sidles up to the driver's side window and punches out Theo. That's amazing. Argyle's able to murder people with one punch. Theo is now dead.
1: (laughs) I don't know if he killed Theo, but I'll say this. The fact that Argyle was like, hey, you heard about that thing in Nakatomi? Yeah, I drove the guy. Yeah, yeah, I was in the basement. It was happening the whole time. That's a pretty good story, right? You can dine on that story the rest of your life. But the fact that he was like, I saw him with a terrorist and I knocked him the fuck out. That dude's never buying his own drinks again. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was also secretly hoping that Theo would stay alive and be the villain for the sequel, where that's the only loose end that didn't get tied up. Like everyone's dead, but Theo's waiting in Arkham or whatever the LA equivalent of Arkham is waiting to, to get his revenge on John and Argyle.
1: God damn it, David. That's such a fucking brilliant idea. Jeremy Irons in Die Hard with the Vengeance, the third one, was like Hans Gruber's sub- brother, mm-hmm. supposedly. And they didn't really even like matter too much. It was kind of like a smokescreen. But if like, yeah, seriously. Ugh. But yeah, when one of these other Die Hard movies when, when they're like, oh, who are we up against? And then, you know, we get a third act reveal that it was like Theo. That would have fucking ruled. Oh, mm-hmm. huge missed opportunity, producers of this movie. <laughs>
0: You could have had a hit on your hands. But Mac, just as Hans and company are loading up the last of the money, a bloody and cinched John McClane arrives. It's John versus Hans with Holly in the middle, but John's got one last Christmas miracle taped to his back.
1: Yeah, the pacing is just like, uh, it's too good at this point, but we're going to slam the brakes on for this final scene. And it's funny because John McClane even kind of like announces it because after some like, bip, 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 awesome sound effects for the, the gunfire here. He goes, Hans. Ah, except imagine like 10 more seconds of that. <laughs> and yeah, he's got a gun taped to his back with Christmas tape and he manages to kill Hans and uh, Eddie, the fake Huey Lewis, fake security guard. But David, there's a moment here where Hans says a line back to John McClane. He's like, oh yeah, what did you say to me? And if you, according to the captions on the fucking movie I saw, Hans says yippee ki motherfucker to him but that is not what I hear.
0: No, not even a little bit. He says, yippee Kaye, motherfucker.
1: Which I hate.
0: Yes, I do too, but it's so effective because it's almost condescending in that way. It's almost like this German terrorist criminal has never bothered to sully his mouth with the F word. So he's kind of clumsy in saying it, kind of insulting, repeating it back. No, drives me nuts, but it's also super effective. Hans Hans Gruber is the best villain ever.
1: Yeah, it does. Look, if he did nothing else in the movie, he's he's probably signed this for a murder version, so just with that.
0: (coughs) But I gotta tell you, this is going to be a mark-out moment for me, the gun taped to the back. This whole sequence, you know, John making his way to to Hans and Holly, and Holly even has a moment where she, under her breath, just mutters, Jesus Christ, because McClane's bloody, his white undershirt is now a sooty brown. Like, he is not the man he was two and a half hours ago, and then to culminate in that reveal of the gun on the back, you know, taped to the back. I I loved it so much. But if you ever get a chance to see this movie in a theater, this is going to be one of those crowd-pleasing moments with the reveal of the gun. It's so awesome to see it in a theater. I loved it so much. This will be my second mark-out moment.
1: So Hans is shot, and he's falling backwards out through the window. But he reaches out for Holly, and he grabs under, and he's actually holding on by just her watch. And that's right, John. This watch that was given her by the Nakatomi Corporation, by Ellis and Mr. Takagi, a watch that symbolized that she is theirs and not John's. Holly takes off the watch, thus freeing her of not only Hans Gruber, but this other identity. She now fully belongs to John McClane and back to this life. That's a it's an unfortunate piece of symbolism, but Hans falls to his death. This final shot of Hans, this super slow motion shot of him as he's falling to his death, I didn't mark out, but it's still a fucking amazing shot. This movie had a lot of splash page moments, and this is the last and maybe the best one because it's just, yeah, it's great.
0: It's great. I wish I knew the stunt performer's name in particular so I could give them credit, but just the drop. I know there's a a pillow at the bottom. I know there's one of those big airbags, but you still have to drop 50 some odd stories. This was awesome. So Mac, John, and Holly have an adrenaline-fueled makeout session and leave Nakatomi Tower where Al is waiting with a big old smile and a bag of Twinkies in his car. But wait, Carl is alive! But in one final, final Christmas miracle, Al rediscovers his police officer bloodlust and shoots Carl dead. Argyle busts out of the parking lot at just the right time and gives John and Holly a ride to the police station where they'll be giving hours of testimony.
1: It's Christmas, all right, but it's Christmas in Los Angeles. Uh, But don't worry, instead of snow, we have papers falling from Nakatomi. Serving as like a snow stand in, right? Now, hmm. are those like, you know, was that printer or copier paper or are those the bearer bonds falling? Uh,
0: I've always thought those were the bearer bonds.
1: Oh, yeah. In that case, more people should have been grabbing them because uh, Christmas came early for those uh, first responders. <laughs> but John meets Al. They have a nice little uh, uh, encounter there.
0: This is a very important encounter. They hug. The, again, you know, this is the button on the thing I've been saying throughout this fucking episode of beating it to death. John McClane is a sensitive action hero. He's he's a man for the 80s. And I can't imagine a Schwarzenegger movie or a Stallone movie ending with one of them hugging somebody. Well, with the exception of Rocky, but that's his wife. But I don't see them starring in a movie where they'd show this level of vulnerability. So yeah, I, that's just going to be the, the button on, on John McClane's character.
1: And thanks to this uh, last second uh, improbable murder attempt by Carl, Al learns to kill again, which, uh, an oddly, I mean, I get it, right? Like, it's sort of like, oh, I'm back to being a full person. But to do that, he had to murder someone? Movies are weird, David.
0: (laughs) That's the 80s for you. You you rooted for the cop to get his bloodlust back. But he does. The day is saved. Holly and John are free to go home. But wait, here comes Thornburg. Thornburg shoves a camera and a microphone in their faces, wants to get the exclusive. But Holly says, no, 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 no. We are going home. We are opening presents and we are going to bed. And so she punches Thornburg in the face. Mac, it's not too late for a markout moment. This will be my third one of the movie.
1: Oh, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Bec- uh, however, that is the end of Die Hard. Hi, right, David, how many markout moments did you have? How many moms up in this tower and or plaza?
0: <laughs> I had three in the tower and the plaza. How about you? A total of five.
1: David, is this someone's favorite movie?
0: Oh, you bet it is. Uh, I might not particularly like the quality of people who love this movie or have made it their identity. But hey, man, I'm not going to stop you from loving this movie. You, uh, you better believe there are people who, who think this is their favorite movie. What do you think, Mac? Of course I think it's someone's favorite movie.
1: Especially if you love Bruce Willis and this is not your favorite Bruce Willis movie. Who are you? You know what I mean? <laughs> what, what's your deal? Let's talk a little bit because maybe I'm interested in you. But yeah, I think it's someone's favorite movie for sure. All right, time for some punch-ups. We're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. David, how would you improve upon this movie? How would you punch it up?
0: My first punch-up, my biggest punch-up, I've had this for years and years, I want a prequel series. Let's throw it on Paramount Plus or Peacock where no one's paying attention, but I want Hans' Eleven. I want to know specifically how Hans got to meet uh, Huey Lewis, <laughs> how they became friends, what Huey Lewis brings to the table. I want to know how he met up with Theo. Like, what is their backstory? Because they sure do know a lot about buildings and the way the FBI handles terrorists. I would like to see the plan come into place, if I could. My other note, I, I don't quite know how to say this. I will just say it. More action, maybe. I think the thing that's missing from this movie that we see in other movies near the top of the mountain is that they bring a variety of action, either whether it be special effects or whether it be a stunt work, choreography, anything like that. Where's the one dude here who's really good at fighting? Where's the one dude with like a gimmick weapon or something? I, I would like to see something like that. I don't know where it goes. This is damn near a perfect movie, but uh, if you want to make it better, we'll figure it out.
1: A punch up I had towards the end is John McClane shoots Hans Gruber and he takes a moment to go, happy trails, Hans. That, while John McClane is saying that, Hans is like grabbing at uh, Holly and like pulling her off the building. My punch up would just have Holly say, hey, John, how about your fucking wife? It's like the one moment where he like stops to preen. It's like, it's like a little too action here. Not enough. Every man in that moment, the fact he's like, well, looks like I did a great job. It's like, I'm about to (laughs) fucking die, asshole. So just have Holly uh, just wake John up from his little, you know, pre victory lap. David, please join me in the Punch Mound Video Store. Now, David, this is an all-action movie video store. We splurged. We got three copies of Die Hard. So what shelves would you put those copies on? What subsections of action does Die Hard belong in?
0: The first copy is going on an 80s action shelf. This is the quintessential 80s action movie. If not number one, it's in a very, very short conversation. The second copy is going in Die Hard on a blank because this is Die Hard in a building it's the granddaddy of them all but uh yeah die Hard on a blank third one is this our first entry in a possible bruce willis shelf i i'm gonna go ahead and say yes he's certainly been in a lot of action movies I'm, I'm not quite sure of the quality of a lot of them but i've got a feeling we'll populate a bruce willis shelf before too long
1: yeah bruce willis has definitely done enough action movies i mean Late in his career, he just, you know, churning him out. But yeah, I mean, I I thought it'd be more front-loaded, but he's definitely made enough action movies to warrant a shelf for sure. Yeah. All right, David, now it is time to reveal the position of Die Hard on the definitive ranking of action movies, aka Punch Mountain itself. Now, before The Mountain reveals to us uh, the ultimate position of Die Hard, where would you rank it?
0: Oh boy, why did you have to ask me that question? Let me preface this again by saying I love this movie. Watching it for The Mountain made me realize how much I love it made me realize how great of a, of a piece of entertainment it is. But this is Punch Mountain. This is the definitive ranking of action movies. And there are a lot of movies on this mountain that feel a lot more action Either they have bigger action, or they have more sustained action throughout, or just... I I, I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time articulating it. Let me just say, don't be surprised where this ends up. I, I I'm not quite sure... This is the Mountain Slayer that I thought it was. What about you, Mac? What are your thoughts going in?
1: Yeah, I mean, Die Hard is fucking great, right? It's Die Hard. It's got a great hero. It's got a great villain. It has a ton of great, awesome, memorable moments. But those memorable moments don't happen to be action scenes. Like, if you look at the other movies on the list, there's like some standout action scenes. And while Die Hard has, you know, great characters, very fun things happening, I don't think like it has those all-star action scenes. I don't think it it's hurting for them. I just think that, you know, that's not necessarily what Die Hard is. There's no stunt spectacular in, in Die Hard. So yeah, definitely super high up. I don't think it has a chance to be the number one action movie of all time uh, because of that. I, I think it is for a lot of people. But I mean, in terms of enjoyability, yeah, this movie is so fucking enjoyable. I mean, it, it's, you know, great paced. Again, characters, moments, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, uh, I'm interested to see where it ends up. Oh, David, those aren't bodies falling on police cruisers. Those are rocks tumbling off the face of the mountain. The golden letters are revealing the position of Die Hard, and it is number six. That makes number one, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Number two, The Raid 2. Number three, Matrix 4, Jurassic Park. Five, Hard Boiled <laughs> 6, Die Hard 7, John Wick 8, Atomic Blonde 9, Speed. That makes sense to me, David.
0: That makes a heck of a lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, in looking at this on the mountain... It's very high because it should be. It is a generationally good action movie. It is a template for all other action movies that come after it. But so is The Matrix, you know? Like, just because something is old and just because we grew up with it and loved it doesn't mean that it's as classic as maybe we made it out to be. I, I, think, this is, I think this is perfect at number six.
1: Yeah, I mean, The Matrix is great. Jurassic Park is like being on an amusement park ride that also, you know, completely wows you. Hard Boiled is just one of those movies where it's like, This is just, you know, pure action cinema. And Die Hard is great. And it also has something that maybe, I mean, honestly, like it's leads. Hans Gruber and John McClane, they're such strong performances. They're such strong characters that they really give Die Hard its punch. So even if like the action scenes in Die Hard are not as kinetic or thrilling or dynamic as John Wick or Atomic Blonde, like that emotion is there to where you're just, this is a dude you're rooting for. You know, you like Hans too, and you're also rooting against him. It's it's like a real it's a real fist pumper of a movie, David. That sounds more erotic than I wanted it to be, but you know what I'm trying to say. You bet I do. Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> oh my goodness, David, you recognize that sound?
0: My Twinkie bag. Who found it?
1: No, David, that's a horn called what?
0: <laughs> that's your Twinkie alarm. Yeah, it lets people know that my <laughs> bag is here. <laughs>
1: okay, no, David, that's a horn calling us to action. On this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the ALS Association. ALS Association is dedicated to discovering treatment and a cure for ALS, and to serve, advocate for, and empower people affected by ALS so they can live their lives to the fullest. After each episode this month, Punch Man will be making a small donation to the National ALS Association. Also, for every review we got on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to that donation, and hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on air. For more information about the ALS Association or to donate directly to them, visit ALS.org.
0: And folks, that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is on our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for all things Mac Blake. Next week from 2003, directed by Michael Bay. Uh Uh-oh, shit's about to get real. We're doing bad boys too. We'll see you next week. Bye. bye Bye-bye.